Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Showing your good side has many rewards. Become a donor at Griffles Plasma and your plasma can make life-saving medicines. Millions of people depend on these medicines to live healthier, more active lives. And every time you donate with Griffles Plasma, you're compensated. You can receive over $500 the first month. Learn more about plasma and how it helps people at grifflesplasma.com. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hey folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us on The Team House, episode 147. I'm Dave Park. This is Jack Murphy. Uh, actually, Jack is queuing us up behind the deck right now. Uh, our D, D couldn't be with us tonight, but uh, so Jack's filling in for D and Jack. And uh, we have a great guest with us tonight, a very special guest, um, Douglas Wise, uh, former SIS-6, correct? Uh, SIS-6. Yes of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. So, um, Doug, the way we love to start these things is, you know, by learning how you got your superpowers. Uh, what is your origin story? Where do you come from? How did all this happen in the very beginning? Well, I mean, like many of your guests, uh, first thing is, let me just say, it's an honor and a privilege to, to, to be with you and, and to be able to to, to help provide a little bit of insight through my experience, you know, to this arcane world of, you know, special operations and and uh, and in the business of of national tactical intelligence. Uh, I also think it's a great thing for you guys to, uh, you know, provide a platform for for veterans, you know, to give voice to the voiceless, which I think is spectacularly great. And I just want to thank all of the people that have dialed in and, uh, and logged in today, you know, for supporting the program and uh, for making this such a great success wow. within the national security and the veteran community. So I think it's absolutely great. It's because of people like you, Doug. I mean, honestly, like you, the you make the show, not us. We're just a couple of dudes yammering. So, 
We appreciate you. <laughs> well, well, I I think your your uh, your your participants are going to find me yammering a lot myself. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, you know, I'll I'll do my fair share of yammering. Perfect. Um, yeah. So let me start at the end uh, for just a sec, and then I'll come back to the beginning if I could. Uh, my beginning is kind of unusual. I grew up on an Amish farm. <clears throat> I don't think many people in the intelligence community started out, you know, harvesting crops by hand in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. <laughs> um, you know, at the end of the ride, you know, I had the pleasure uh, of serving public service for 50 years. That's a half a century. And it was, uh, you know, not, as I've said, and I think many of, of you who are who are listening to me and watching, I think you can kind of resonate with this. That, you know, I never had a bad day. I've had better days, right? but I've never had a bad day. I think the worst day that I ever experienced was probably in December 2009 when I was in Iraq and we had eight of our colleagues who were, you know, murdered at Coast Base in Afghanistan. And I knew every one of them from the base chief on down. I knew all the uh, all the officers, including the GRS guys who were who were wounded and, and fell on the line of duty. So, you know, that was not a good day. Right. But in the end, you know, I looked for the positive that, you know, their sacrifice was not in vain because we took a hard look at what was the causative of that, that. And we were a better agency. And so they didn't die in vain. Their sacrifice actually produced probably life saving changes in the way we did business. So, but I never had, I had a real a real bad day. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is after you come out of the ride, and for those of you that are younger on this podcast, and have either at the beginning of your national security journey, or you uh, you know are contemplating, uh, you could take a look at me. This is uh, on Photoshop. This is what you're going to look like at the end of the ride. So if you want to, <laughs> if you want to look, if you want to look like a, a hard-ridden mule, you know, beaten mule, well, well then you know, <laughs> you may want to get off the train right now. But uh, anyway, it was uh, it, it was great. But, you know, the challenges galore throughout my entire career, and it didn't end when I left, as a matter of fact, because when I became the deputy director of DIA, uh, they rolled back my cover from day one, which went all the way back to 1987 when I entered on duty uh, with CIA. And, and if, if either of you gentlemen are interested, you know, I'm more than happy to talk about that, that process as well later. But... Um, you know, one of the things that when I came out from undercover and and I'm able to tell people, you know, with even with great pride, quite frankly, and uh, legitimate pride for the for the officers like you both who, you know, I serve with, serve for, and who serve for me, uh, made it, you know, always a good day and, and often a better day. Um, but, you know, I... When you come out from undercover and, and you can kind of shed and take off the jacket and you and you really expose your real self, you know, there's there's a lot of benefits to that because you can talk about the, the power and the majesty of the of what you experienced and uh, and help to provide a little bit of insight into what those of us who are working outside the, the public eye, you know, what contributions that we're making, what the risks we're taking, the challenges we face. And, and 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 how we feel when we when we do that, uh, sense of pride, the sense mm -hmm. of accomplishment, and uh, and so you know being able to to dis 
discuss that finally and attribute it to CIA is, is, is a wonderful thing. But then what happens is usually to the person that you're talking to, uh, who may not know you, particularly when I public speak, uh, on as I do a fair amount. Um, you know, you collide with the public perception of what a CIA officer looks like. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, David, you and Jack would agree, I do bear a striking resemblance to Daniel Craig, but I'm maybe, maybe Matt Damon, I'm not, I don't, I, I don't look a lot like Matt Damon, but the, uh, but the perception of what a CIA officer is, is really framed by Hollywood. And right. I, I, do a, I do a fair amount of engagement with, with Hollywood. And if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that as well. But um, I was given a prestigious invite to go speak at, uh, give an evening lecture at Chatham House in London mm -hmm. on James, St. James Square, wonderful institution. It is one of two think tanks that exists in the United Kingdom. In America, we have a lot of them. In the United Kingdom, they have two, RUSI and, and Chatham House. Yeah. And Chatham House was where Chatham House rule came from, and they're the ones that started it. And, and so it, it was really an honor, and I had never been there, and I had no, no idea what to expect. So I'm waiting in the wings of this huge auditorium inside their building with my American program counter uh, sponsor, my wife, Cindy, you know, who was a, just absolutely spectacular lady, put up with me for decades and was a super professional in her own right as an FBI special agent, pioneer female, first pilot for the Bureau, female pilot for the wow. Bureau. So I'm, I'm more proud of her than I am of myself. Uh, but she was in the audience because, you know, we thought it'd be a great thing to share. And and so the audience, quite frankly, the auditorium was getting full. So I turned to Jacob and I go, uh, hey, Jacob, uh, is, is this a big audience? And he looks at me and says, second largest audience we've ever had here at Chatham House. Second, wow. second largest. I said, who, 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 said, who drew the biggest crowd? Uh, and he goes, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He was here two weeks ago. And I go, well, I, I'm honored, but I'm not a Benjamin Netanyahu glass figure. But the attractiveness for all of these people was the fact that I was an acknowledged and open CIA officer served in clandestine service. They marketed it heavily. As a note for our audience, the British Secret Intelligence Service have a secrecy agreement. We have sort of one, but they have one for life right. where they can't, they can't acknowledge their association with MI6. So the fact that I was a spy and could acknowledge and could discuss spy stuff even though my topic was actually Russian disinformation, uh, I think they came to see what a real spy looked like. So uh, I hadn't really thought through what the what the collision would be from perception to reality, but I learned that uh, pretty soon after the thing was over. So Jacob and I walk in, we sit down on the stage, there's a podium there, he's going to go introduce me. In the meantime, my wife's in the crowd, and being an FBI special agent, want to be, you know, hey, your time on target got to be TOT is now <laughs> this thing should have this thing should have begun here at uh, you know at uh, at 7 p.m. you know she leans over and you know it's now 7:10 7:15 so she leans over to ask the uh, the British guy sitting next to her in the audience and she goes uh, hey it's uh, 7:15 it's supposed to start at seven when's this thing gonna start and the guy goes uh ma'am I think it's gonna be when that fat old guy introduces the CIA speaker. And uh, 
So when she's telling me that story, I go, well, well, babe, didn't you like put him on the spot and tell him you were married to me? And she goes, nah, I had to apply the need to know principle. He didn't need to know that. So I'm under no illusion, you know, that, uh, you know, what I represent may be a disconsonance with what the public expects. So again, kudos to you gentlemen for creating this platform that allows you know, your guests, many of whom have done much more than I have um, along this special ops espionage journey, you know, to kind of A, inform, dispel mythology and to be able to maybe not inspire. I don't think I'll be inspirational, but maybe to, you know, get over some obstacles and come and join the family, you know, put an application in and be part of service to America and the safety and security of the American people. But anyway, back to you, gentlemen. Yeah, uh, where you want where you want to go? There's, from there's well, a, there's back a, to you. You're on an Amish farm, uh, churning butter, I suppose. No, uh, harvest <laughs> harvesting crops by hand. And okay. that, that was that was nice. But I, you know, it's a long, complicated journey to to go from the Amish farm to Northern Ohio. But uh, it was my 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 father who actually uh, ended up going. You know, greatest generation, World War II vet. Uh, and, uh, you know, decided that, uh, you know, he didn't want to do farm stuff. So he went to get an education, became an academic and moved the family. And so we moved to Northern Ohio, um, which was kind of an interesting experience, although Northern Ohio is very agricultural. So that wasn't, wasn't all that bad to, you know, people didn't dress the same as we did, but the, um, but it was kind of interesting, and, and I grew up there, you know, typical Midwest kid, you know, monocultural experience. You know, I don't believe there was a single Hispanic in my town. There was, I think, a small number of African-American families, and most of us were sliced white bread kids, you know, growing up to, you know, 400 kids in high school, two varsity sports. And, uh, you know, ultimately, it was John Glenn that appointed me to the military academy at West Point. And so wow. I joined a class in 1972 and 1968. Not a bad, not a good time in America. Uh, very unpopular war. And so joining the military was not was not fashionable. Can I say that? What John Glenn did was uh, he used a, a screening mechanism that doesn't exist anymore. And it was a civil service aptitude test, and kind of like SAT light. And all he did was use that to, to discriminate, you know, first order, throw out the people that can't fill out the circle with their number two pencil, you know, throw that guy out. So told to go to Findlay, Ohio, which is a modest sized town in North, Northern Ohio, a little south of Toledo, and go to the post office, upper upper level, inkwell desks. You come in, they give you the, the test booklet, tell you, don't open it up until we tell you because it's time test fill out the first page. And the first page is all biographic, right? Right. So you, you're writing all that stuff down, putting your initials in your, of your name, you know, down in the, in the block. And then the seminal block that's down there about midway was what academy are you, are, are you, do you wish to attend? My dad flew in World War II. Uh, ultimately, my younger brother, he flew uh, F-15 Strike Eagles. And uh, so I was raised to, to be a, an Air Force kid, you know? So my job was to go to the Air Force Academy. So it was a no brainer for me. Uh -huh. So I marked, I put that dark in that little circle, you know, USAFA. So there's a seat in front of me and uh, 
All of a sudden, poof of air, plop. This guy sits down in front of me. His name is Kent Cartwright, you know, Hollywood name. And Kent looked like the epitome of, you know, weightlifting surfer, if there was such a thing. Broad-shouldered, narrow waist, uh, captain of both the football and the basketball teams, had an active social life, which I didn't have, and uh, was an academic star and was the most popular guy in school. You know, homecoming king, yeah, the whole works. So I tap him on his shoulder and I go, uh, hey, Kent, um, what academy are you going for? What academy are you going to? And he turns and looks at me and he goes, I'm going to Air Force Academy. And I go, me. So I turn that number two pencil around and I just erase that <laughs> USAFA. And I just mark sent, not the Coast Guard Academy, not, not doing that, Naval Academy. Now, my mom knew my dad. I wasn't eligible to go to that academy. So I'm going to USMA. So I had Max said it. The winds of fate blew Cartwright to the Air Force Academy. They threw him out after a, a semester. The other wind of fate blew me to West Point. And I, as I said, I entered and commissioned a second lieutenant in 1972. So that's kind of my journey to, to get to, to that point. Right. Um, and uh, not, some, not an outcome that I think anybody any of my relatives back in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania would have anticipated, but, but anyway, that's, that's, that's my early story. Yeah. And I, you had a, a pretty interesting military career. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about becoming a junior officer or some of your duty stations yeah. and what that was like yeah. for you? Well, yeah, yeah that, that's a great question. Thank, thanks for asking. Um, in, in 1972, it was a bad time uh, mm -hmm. to be in the army. It was, you know, racial violence. It was uh, narcotics related violence. Uh, ill-discipline, you know, it was a, it was a draft army, uh, and it was a combination. There were, you know, volunteers, and, and the army was trying to transition. You know, read the book, Prodigal Soldiers, and you'll, you'll really understand, you know, some of the courage that was necessary for the army to transform itself, and we had not yet gotten to the point where we even, you know, began the first step of a 12-step program by acknowledging that the army was really in harm's way quite frankly, deprofessionalized, it was ridden with all kinds of, of corruption, moral corruption, ethical corruption, tainted by this unpopular war, you know, underappreciated, not even under, but not appreciated by the American people, really not understanding what Vietnam veterans had gone through, you know, all of the horrors of war, all of the trauma, all the shock, you know, all of just the horrors, and then to come back and and not be welcomed back as as a member of American society. And of course, you had the, the whole thing of a deranged Vietnam veteran, right? You had that, that kind of mindset that I think a lot of people, a lot of people had. So uh, entering the, the army at that time was, was a really difficult time. I can, and I think one or more of your guests, I think had mentioned, uh, you know, pulling duty officer armed because, you know, as a young officer, if you were alone, you didn't go alone into the barracks because that was that was the same thing as going being a point man, you know, on a, on a jungle patrol. Yeah. You know, you're going to hit a tripwire and you're going to be the first casualty of that. And, uh, you know, it was it was frightening, uh, to say the least. But, you know, here's how my first day, you know, at, in, a, in a real unit began. You know, I show up in the unit and I show up into the replacement detachment on the walls of the replacement detachment, these big posters. And it said, if you're going to this outfit, call this Audubon number. Somebody from the unit will figure out how to, how to get you there. 
And so I called the unit, and it was uh, it, the unit was the 1st Battalion, 509th Parish Airborne Mech Infantry. If there ever was a dichotomous concept of having mechanized airborne battalion, we didn't do a lot of mech because none of those M113s worked, and we never did any maintenance on them to make sure they didn't work because we prefer to be paratroopers rather than the motor pool monkeys. But uh, it was an elite unit at that time of U.S. Army Europe. We were, you know, entire airborne brigade of the 8th Division. So I called, you know, uh, my sponsor expected to show up. First Lieutenant Morrison was his name. I don't know why I remember that. And uh, all of a sudden I hear my name, you know, and I jump up excited. And uh, I go, Lieutenant Wise, and I go, yeah, yeah, here, here, here. And E7 walks over and introduces himself. He goes, hey, sir, welcome to Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 509th Parachute Infantry. And I said, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate the welcome. Where's uh, my sponsor? I thought he would come and get me. And he goes, nah, he de-roast out. He's gone. And uh, I said, uh, cheekily, not seriously, but cheekily, I said, well, uh, I'm surprised the company commander didn't come to personally welcome me to the unit. And he looks at me and he goes, Lieutenant, you are the company commander. <laughs> I'm your first sergeant. <laughs> so, so you can imagine, you don't even know where to put your second lieutenant bar. Right. I mean, you didn't even know he has to go on the left to right. You know, and all of a sudden now, you know, everything you've ever been taught is now going to come into sharp focus or be defocused. So without a doubt, I, I was a, the acting company commander for about 90 days of Charlie Company. And without a doubt, for me personally, it was the most formative, immersive, challenge-laden leadership development experience that just really educated me on the good, the, the things to do and things not to do as a leader in, in that, in the army of 1972. And for me, it was a, just a platinum gold standard, absolutely spectacular leadership experience. How, how so? Asked, can you can you yeah, give us some yeah, examples? I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, and and my having said that, that it was a formative and very invaluable leadership experience. To your question, I think if you asked the the troopers of Charlie Company. I'm thinking they'd have a whole different perspective on my 90 days in command. Uh, I think they they were sitting there happy that they weren't back in Vietnam. Every one of them were Vietnam vets. Every one of them were draftees. You know, they knew that nobody could, they could act any way they wanted. And so um, they knew that there wasn't enough time for, you, you know, you to threaten somebody with sending you back to Vietnam. Draftees had come out, did 13 months in Vietnam, come back, they had a short time left, and then they were leaving the army for the most part. And so using the power and majesty of a gold bar of a second lieutenant <laughs> and to be able to issue peremptory orders and expect them to be obeyed like uh, like all military academy cadets and you know pretend second lieutenants at the infantry officer basic course and ranger school, pathfinder school, and, and all the other courses that I jump master school that I went that I went to in preparation for this assignment, you know, all of those skills were were helpful, but not 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 essential. And so you quickly found out that you know ordering, pressuring, you know, directing, 
and acting like an imperious, uh, you know, company commander was not going to get you to an outcome that would be useful for you personally, and more importantly, for the unit, or would it benefit the soldiers of Charlie Company at that point? And so I realized and got a chance to learn the, the, that sweet spot you got to be in. You got to mm -hmm. be strong and you got to be, you got to show confidence, but not overconfidence. You got to make good decisions. You got to allow the soldiers to have some freedom of action, particularly at that point. You got to allow the NCOs to really, you know, you command and the NCOs lead. And I really learned the distinction between that as the Russians are finding out now, you know, when they're performing so poorly on combat because the NCO, we always joked, right? The backbone of the army was right. the non-commissioned officer corps. Well, guess what? It turned out to be true. You know, Ukraine has proven that to the Russians beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so knowing that, determining where that sweet spot, how hard you could push, you know, how often you, you had to push, but how much freedom, but not too much freedom, you know, what kind of relationship that you had to have with your E7 first sergeant and your E6 platoon leaders, uh, you know, because I was the only officer in the company on top of that, you know, at the time. And uh, so that was an interesting experience, to say the least. And, uh, uh, you know, and the way you learn, at least the way I learned, it's not, not the best way to learn, but the way I learned was by making mistakes. Mm. But you don't want to make big mistakes because then your soldiers will lose confidence in your ability. But you do have to, you do have to get out on the edge, not over the tips of your skis, but you got to be leaning forward. And you got to be, you got to be, you got to be comfortable in taking some risks when you're an inexperienced, you know, really naive commander and you're trying to command you know men who are really combat veterans and who are you know quite jaded and and affected by the, the attitude of the american people and by the experience that they had traumatic in many respects but you know learning where that sweet spot is and learning how a good leader will will be able to operate in that sweet spot to be effective to be confident not overconfident not to be ineffective to really be able to have your soldiers benefit for the period that you're in command mm -hmm. to have soldiers be at one level when you begin and have them be at a better place at the end. I'm not sure I did that real well, but learning that I needed to do that right. in that 90 days was probably the most important thing for me. And uh, I'll tell you what, the, the lessons I learned in those 90 days uh, carried me uh, forward and, and later on in my career, I mean, I was uh, I, I had the the honor and the pleasure to be a company commander in the first Ranger Battalion when it, when it was established. I was in the second wave of company commanders, and uh, then the only battalion. And uh, you know, had I not really learned those lessons and applied those lessons, you know, I don't think the chief staff of the army would selected me as one of the captains to come in and command of then the premier unit in the United States Army, quite right. frankly. And uh, I would have never I would have never developed into something that would have been even competitive for that. Mm. And then later on in my career, and as many of your guests have said, you know, it's a little awkward to talk about yourself accomplishments. It's easy to talk about what you did, 
talking about what you've accomplished gets to be a little self-serving. But, uh, you know, I, I had the, the, the unexpected honor to be, you know, two years below the zone selectee to 04. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's goods and bads in that. I lost a lot of time to learn what it's like to be a major in the United States Army. And that was unhelpful to me. But at the one at one point, you know, I think the statisticians would tell you I was one of six youngest lieutenant colonels in the United States Army when I made 05. That's amazing. And 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 so that's a good thing if your name is me. It's a bad thing if you want a lieutenant colonel that's got all the experiences that you want a lieutenant colonel to have when they make lieutenant colonel. Right. Uh, and so for me, I found myself to be at a professional personal disadvantage by the time I got to 05. Proud to be early select, but really paid a huge price for that because I was woefully untrained and, and inexperienced to be a very good uh, lieutenant colonel. Uh, after my time in, in the uh, in the Rangers, uh, it, it was interesting because, and I know, mean no disrespect to the U.S. Army Recruiting Command or whatever they're calling it now, um, but uh, I remember the the, guy, the the team from Milperson from the Hoffman Building then the head of all army personnel and the people from infantry branch or whatever, I don't remember, you know, they came down to Fort Stewart and they were giving us career advice and guidance and talking about, you know, what we done and what was in the future and, you know, giving us an opportunity to say what we wanted. And they had the opportunity to totally reject all that and tell us what we're going to do anyway. And so, you know, I go down and they go, well, let's look at what, what's coming next for you. And so they uh, they open up the big musty book of common knowledge, you know, this big tome, mm, boom, and they flip through some parchment, and then they go down, and they find yeah, wise, 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 yeah, mm, there you are, yeah, you're going to go back and teach at the military academy. And I said, uh, uh, no, sir, I'd rather just stay with troops. That's all right. And they go, okay, so you don't want to go back and be a member of the faculty at the military academy? I said, no, sir. So they want you to come back, and I said. I, I'm proud of my four years there. I didn't enjoy my four years there. I wasn't a good cadet. I was a crappy cadet. And uh, quite frankly, if I never go back there again, I'll be perfectly happy. Ironically, my wife just encouraged me to go back to my 50th reunion. And I will tell you this, when you have a 50th reunion of any institution, there's a lot of old people there. You know, I, I like to think I wasn't one of them, but there's a lot of old people there. A lot of guys brought their dads, I think. And... Uh, so I said, no, I, I'd rather not go. And they go, not a problem. Not a problem. We're flexible. Here, let's see what the book of common knowledge has for you. So they go back a few pages and they go, oh, you're going to command a recruiting battalion in Detroit. And I you know, kind of looked and went, hmm. hey, can we go back a few pages and talk about that West Point thing? And they go, yeah, we thought you'd uh, come to your senses somewhere but I ended up uh, you know, going off to graduate school and teaching teaching at the military academy, but I only did two years there, so I went to troops and back to troops and uh, had, a, had a couple tactical assignments, and then I ended up at the, the Pentagon in DesOps for anybody that served in the Deputy Chief Staff for Operations. I think it's called the G3 of the Army now, and I was in the basement of the Pentagon where all the special ops guys were, and uh, one day I got uh, told that uh, go up to to the personnel office. You, you got an RFO request for orders. You know, you're going. You got a new job. Like I didn't ask for a new job. They go, we're not interested in what you want. 
you go up, get your RFO. So I go up and an RFO, it was pink, if I recall correctly. And, uh, you know, it was a form that turned it out on pink paper. And it was at my name and date of birth and social security number and all that. And then it said uh, uh, assignment date effective. And it was like tomorrow. And then the uh, f- to do what? So classified. To do where? Classified. To do so the whole thing was just useless in terms of me being able to figure it out. Nobody in desktops knew what was happening. And so what what had happened is apparently CIA had asked for a military detailee with, you know, a, a, some semblance of my background, you know, at my at my rank. And so the next thing I know is, you know, I'm going off to some mysterious organization. So Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. I was told to call this number. So call this number. And a guy at the other end goes, hello. And I go, uh, yeah, this is Lieutenant uh, Colonel Wise. Um, I just got a military piece of paper. That, that told me that I was getting a new job and I was supposed to call you and I don't know who you are. And so I apologize if I'm bothering you, but but maybe I called the wrong number. You go, not called the right number. Here's what I want you to do. The intersection of 395 and, uh, and Franconia Road, you know where that is? I go, yes, there's a hotel there. Interestingly enough, some years later, a Russian KGB officer, you know, undercover was, was arrested by the FBI there, meeting an American spy. So anyway, he says, go to that hotel, walk outside in the portico, have a red ball hat, have a magazine under your right arm. He's going to pick you up in a pickup truck. He's not, you get in the back. Don't talk to him. He's not going to talk to you. And all will be explained in due course. So, you know, I do the whole ball hat magazine under pickup truck shows up, Johnny on the spot. I get in the back of the truck. You know, I want to be able to say, hey, thanks for giving me a ride. But, you know, I'm, I follow the rules. So, you know, I have no idea. And then they, they drove me to CIA headquarters where it became obvious to me, it may not be the brightest bulb in the drawer, but <laughs> it became obvious to me that uh, now I understand, you know, what I'm going to do. Well, it turned out, you know, to be a, 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 a temporary status as a detailee while all this security process and at that time, it was totally different than, than now. We had, to do, we had to be assessed as a full staff officer for CIA, uh, not just as a detailee go through the, you know, the counterintelligence polygraph. We had the whole lifestyle thing, get abused by the polygrapher. And, and uh, you know, someday when I pass away and I meet one of those guys in hell, I'm going to kick his butt <laughs> because, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a number of them abused uh, many of us. But... Uh, I was uh, asked to join the Counterterrorism Center, uh, which was a, quite a new institution. It was an innovative institution at the time because the director of operations for CIA was uh, 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Was organized geographically. And, of course, as, as some of you that are, that are older than others, uh, you know, who may remember terrorism in a time of hijacked airplanes, uh-huh. the Entebbe raid and by, by the Israeli Defense Force. And, and, and that period of time, you know, Steedham being, you know, murdered and thrown out on the tarmac and, you know, Egypt Air, you know, aircraft being hijacked to Malta, you know, all of this stuff, all of which was state sponsored, but all of which was transnational in its execution. And so having to deal with the issue of terrorism, which knew no boundaries, terrorists generally don't care about political boundaries and they don't care about national affiliation so much. And so, you know, some iconoclast in CIA took a big risk mm-hmm. and uh, created the counterterrorism center and pulled us, pulled people out of the geographic divisions, which is what they were called, and put them into the counterterrorism center. Uh, Phil Mudd, for example, you see him on CNN all the time. He and I were branch chiefs in the counterterrorism center together at the same time. Mike Scheuer, a little crazy. Uh, you know, Mike Scheuer was another branch chief, you know, at that time. But, uh, you know, I think the reason why I was there, one, from my military background, and uh, to be able to, uh, you know, so they didn't have to waste a real talented, real CIA officer in this experiment known as the Counterterrorism Center, which was not career enhancing, quite frankly. You know, you as a young operator, you wanted to grow up in an area division. The feudal lord owned you, abused you, rode you like a rented mule. And, but at the same time, if you were worthy of, of his attention and investment, you know, your career, you know, would be guided and, and enabled and nurtured by by your division chief. Uh, serving in counterterrorism center wasn't going to get you that nurturing and, and that mentoring and that, that, that developing and so nobody wanted to go there. So I'm, I'm being honest. I think, you know, they, they picked me for a couple of reasons, one of which was they didn't want to waste a perfectly good CIA officer. You know, you know, Douglas, just real quick, because, you know, for a lot of our younger audience, you know, if they know anything about the CIA, like the Counterterrorism Center, the CTC, has been basically the star of the CIA since 9-11. And so they might not understand why, you know, like – why it was such a risk for somebody to take this idea uh, when all these other, like you said, regions were so siloed. Like what was so groundbreaking about CTC and what were some of the naysayers about it? Like, like what, cause you think now we think, Oh, a counterterrorism center. That makes sense. Why wouldn't, yeah. You know, why would that be a problem? But like, what were the problems that they ran into in the early days? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer your question in a way that's understandable. Um, you, you know, as I said, the Directorate of Operations, both in Washington, D.C. and in the field, and the interaction between a CIA station chief, which is the senior CIA officer in a foreign location, 
and the headquarters component of that are all ruthlessly geographically defined. Not anymore, but in the context of your question, back in the day mm -hmm. when uh, before the comet hit the earth and killed all the dinosaurs. And to give you a sense of scale, when I joined CTC back then, Counterterrorism Center, there were 94 of us, and that included four contractors. Uh, at the time that I served in CTC as a, as a senior intelligence service officer, when I came back to be the assistant director of operations, there were 2,200 officers in that center. Wow. To your point. Wow. And further to your point, if you were a traditional CIA officer in a traditional geographic division and you hadn't served in a counterterrorism capacity, that had some career impacts too. And the idea was to incentivize talented officers to, to acquire that experience. And we needed that talent and we needed those officers to contribute. My career, like many, like you gentlemen, your career is defined by 9-11. You know, mine, uh, mine as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so back to your question, you know, the, the demarcation between authorities were, were sh sharply defined by geography. You had the Near East Division. You had European Division. You had Africa Division. You had Latin America Division. You had, you know, Asia Division. And, and, the, board, and, the, and the boundaries between those divisions bureaucratically were impermeable and, and imporous. Nobody crossed. And there were no defectors, generally, who, who, who were of any value. You know, if you were a talented officer and you decided, hey, you know what, I'd like to serve an Asia division, your European division would, would say, absolutely, and they shoot you in the back as you kind of climbed over the border. Uh, it was, it was real. I mean, the, and I used the term feudal lords in a way that is very accurately descriptive. And yes, it has negative con connotations. And, and, and so, uh, yeah. Uh, there were some negative aspects to both the people and the, and the organization. So when the CIA, and I wasn't part of the discussion, obviously, right. you know, I came in after the decision had been made. So there are probably many people who you could get on your podcast who could talk to you about the early history of the counterterrorism center, much more authoritatively and credibly than me. But if you look at somebody who wanted to literally sh shatter the organizational structure of the directorate of operations. Somebody had to make that decision. Right. And obviously that decision had to be made, had to be endorsed or made, you know, at the director's level, right? It couldn't be made down at the GS-12 level. And so you had not only had to create a raison d'etre for this new enterprise, you had to rationalize the value it would, it would bring because it would create all kinds of chaos and disruption if for another reason, just in a personnel system, in the cable traffic system, because nothing existed. You know, this was new enterprise created out of whole cloth, and it's a zero-sum game in CIA. So it's not like you could just hire 94 additional officers to, to be professional counterterrorism officers. And in fact, the term of art was you were home-based in the geographic division. There was enough resistance that the senior leadership of the agency said, we'll authorize CTC to be to come into existence, but it won't have the authority to home base officers. Uh -huh. They didn't want officers to permanently uh, homestead like you could in the geographic divisions. So I can only infer 
from what I know of the rigidity structurally, remarkable flexibility operationally. Let me tell you. I think like uh, Rick, uh, when we interviewed Rick Prado, either either in his interview or in his book, he was talking about the really unique thing about CTC at that time being that they could um, read the reports, the cable traffic coming from any division. From everybody. Yeah, yeah. you're right. And, and thanks for, for mentioning that, because I was going to talk about, you know, one of the some of the challenges that the creation of CTC and some of the value. Rick and I were, were in CTC at the same time. So I'm I'm a big fan of Rick Prado. Uh, he really he 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 made a huge contribution. Let me tell you, as you all know already. Uh, I haven't written a book yet, and I don't think so because you know I don't have a big family, so I wouldn't sell very many. But <laughs> the uh, uh, but you can imagine a terrorist. You know, a terrorist originates. You know, even if state sponsored terrorist, it originates in one country, transits to another country, ends up in in, in a in a third country links up with another dude, then travels to another part of the globe, gets all gunned up and equipped up, you know, does his all pre-mission rehearsals and, and, and then do this. So you can imagine if there is ruthless guarding of operational turf created by the structure of the DO, you'd have to coordinate. And, and who, who would do the coordination? Right. Whose terrorist is that? Right. You know, it, is that terrorist a wholly owned property of where that dude originated, where he transited, or where he's going to conduct the operation, or everybody? So who's in charge? Everybody's in charge, but nobody's in charge. Right. So somebody had the guts and the wisdom to create as they looked at this emerging terrorist threat, as they got more violent and more large scale, to create this pioneering institution called the Counterterrorism Center, which ultimately, you know, became instantiated and was truly part of the magic of CIA in, in post 9-11 time frame. And so once you had CIA, to your point, able to see all of the information flow from all the area divisions, none of the other area division, a, terrorists could originate in any division. All that traffic for counterintelligence reasons was need to know for any division wasn't need to know for AF division. So how do you break that compartmentation barrier in a timely enough fashion to actually mount an operation, counterterrorism operation to interdict and maybe remove the guy from the battlefield? And so, you know, we had an optic sitting in C2C that the, no other division had in the agency. Mm -hmm. And so we proved our worth every day. I'm not saying I did. I'm saying that the officers who pioneered that center, you know, proved their worth every day in providing safety and security to Americans by this emerging threat. My job was very narrowly defined. I was a rendition guy. And so my job was to, to help start the and perpetuate the, the nascent uh, rendition program. And arguably, you know, we had a modicum of success. We captured uh Kanzi, the guy that killed our officers, we captured Ramzi Youssef and a number of others. And we kind of learned, and those were all warrant-based renditions. Uh, and so our, also one of the byproducts of Counterterrorism Center was, you know, we were able to create strategic partnerships with institutions across the U.S. government that none of the area divisions, it wasn't because they didn't want to, they had no need to. Right with federal law enforcement, right? Who's our natural partner? Federal Bureau of Investigation, right? Federal law enforcement, 
Customs and Border Patrol, you know, now known ICE. You know, you had all, all of these partnerships because, of course, in the beginning days, we didn't have, you know, non-warranted operations directed to remove terrorists from the battlefield. We didn't have lethal authority except for personal protection when we we're out on operations. Uh, and uh, so it was warrant-based. And so we had to have not only we would, in, in the parlance of Stan McChrystal, we would find and fix and then partnering with the FBI, they we would together do the finishing. But the front face of that finishing was very naturally and very appropriate to preserve the judicial process because all of these guys, and we brought back many minor terrorists, if there is such a thing, to Ramzi Yusuf class uh, terrorists, you know, the Bohinka operation. You're going to drop eight United Airlines out of the sky, you know, in Asia. You know, glad we took him off the battlefield. And uh, so our team got him. And, and it still but happens it, today, right? But you don't see the CIA fingerprints on it a lot of times. You, you don't. And, and, that, and that, that, that is very natural and very necessary. And because, you know, our colleagues are, you know, not acknowledged. And so they can't be in, in the front face of even major successes. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, CIA is, has become uh, more widely known for in the counterterrorism business because of their roles, not only in Afghanistan, but in Iraq and and, uh, and in other places of the world. And quite frankly, you know, every station and base in the world, you know, had a counterterrorism responsibility. And we understood that that was the existential threat to America. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Eastern Europe was still coming out of the disintegration of the Soviet, Soviet Union. China was still, you know, hadn't, you know, come onto the world stage. And, North Korea was being its petulant teenager, pubescent in the in geopolitical terms, you know, you know, immature, you know, infantile behavior, but which was an irritation, but not a not an existential issue, you know. And so it was terrorism that became the threat to Americans, particularly when America was and still is, you know, a global power with big embassies. We have very active foreign policy, and we were very much at risk and so having officers like many of us on this podcast you know to be part of that that process was was key and essential for american security and a huge part of american uh, foreign policy and national security so policy as i think you all know the the last uh what was it like five years of your military career you were a liaison with the agency with ctc um you spoke, you spoke a little bit about some of the things that you were involved in. What was that like for you as, uh, I guess, your career evolved and, and maybe your thoughts and perceptions evolved about the agency? Um, what, 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 was, what were some of your big takeaways from those five years? Well, the big takeaway from my five years is actually the, 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 the magnitude of anti-military attitudes in, inside CIA. And some of that was because you had, you know, young CIA officers with a modicum of military experience that, you know, was quite unpleasant for them. And so it was an opportunity for them to action that in some degree. Uh -huh. Some of that, some of that discriminatory and, and, and negative attitude was out of ignorance and, and out of basing on tribal lore and, 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 and mythology that had no basis. In fact, uh, some of that was, 
by, you know, you had, you know, guys that just now they could call generals Bob, you know, as opposed to general. Right. And so I found, I concealed my, my military affiliation in my time in the counterterrorism center. You know, I grew my hair about the same length I have it now. Uh, and uh, which was quite awkward when I went to retire from the army in 1992, <laughs> I had to get a haircut in order to process out. You know, the bastards made me cut my hair. Uh, if you talk to anybody that knew me back then, they go, we always thought he was an IT guy, you know, because he had that long hair. Um, and, uh, but I, I found the anti-military attitude that was, was, was mystifying to me. The longer I stayed there, the more I understood that it wasn't out of evil. It was out of really not understanding what the power of majesty that comes from the intersection of the military and CIA, which we learned, and we can talk about that, you know, we learned in other battlefields and other places antecedent to, to our Afghan experience. But I had, uh, you know, my first leadership as, as a real CIA officer. Now, I had led as a branch chief. I had the rendition branch chief. Uh, and the rendition program it was taken to a fine art by generations way beyond me, you know, to, to scale and professionalism far beyond what, what I and my team would have ever envisioned. And it was also a cross-discipline team, by the way, uh, and, and interagency team. So it was kind of unique that we had. And, and, and nobody, and the nice thing about my job is nobody would say no, you know, because I'd go, really, you're not interested in saving American lives? And you can say no and say, maybe you don't want that guy to be a spy, because we can't afford them. But, oh, really? You put a price tag on American lives, sir or ma'am? And you immediately got it. You were, well, no, no, no. Well, I mean, that's essentially by saying no to my budget request, you know, what, what essentially you're doing. Right. You're, you're putting my price. So, so, and so I had actually, you know, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but, but nobody said no, you know, to those of us who are doing God's work in the counterterrorism center. And, uh, but the military attitude is interesting. So I retired in 1992 took a, an appointment as a, had to go through the whole security process again, matriculated as a full CIA staff officer, got an appointment. And then I ended up uh, advocating for my first official CIA leadership job. And uh, I found it interesting. I, I interviewed with an SIS three. So he had, he had an opening for a branch chief. And I figured what a great place for me to begin because I just was a branch chief of a large branch, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Okay. And uh, so I'm having this discussion and he goes, uh, uh, he goes, uh, you were a military officer when you, for the last five years, I, I understand. I go, yes. He goes, so when you led your branch, you were using military leadership. And I go, no response. And he goes, what I need you to do is use CIA leadership. <laughs> and I go, sir, with all due respect, um, leadership is leadership. There's different aspects of leadership that are environmentally, you know, appropriate, uh, but fundamentally defining the mission, identifying the tasks or accomplish the mission, build a team, you know, resource them, help them understand opportunities, help them understand what obstacles are, provide feedback. I said, sir, that that's not the sole purview of the military or CIA. That's called Leadership 101. So we had these, I had a two hour conversation with this guy. And he said he was very gracious and he was very patient and he's very understanding of my plotting 
discussion, academic though it may have been, about the issue of leadership. Uh, and finally, at the end, he said, he said, hey, look, Doug, I really got to admire you. You gave it your best shot. He said, but, you know, and I understand what you said. And a lot of it makes sense. He says, but in the end, I need somebody that's led in CIA before. Now, I'm thinking back in my mind, you know, well, if, if leading in CIA for the first time requires you to have led before, then that wasn't the first time. So how are you going to ever lead if you got to have led before you so i couldn't figure out the logic that he was applying right and, and so i finally i said sir look you, you you've been very gracious with your time i've taken way more time than than i than i had asked for you know you listened to me you gave me my opportunity to speak and i respect your decision and uh, i'll just go away and he goes well thank you very much i appreciate it. He says I, I did learn something and i said well i'm glad and I start to go, and I go, but sir, can I, uh, can I just make one more point? And he goes, yeah, what's your final point? I goes, there's only one officer in this branch, and I'm, <laughs> and I, and that's the branch chief. It's a branch of one officer. It'd be me working for me. I said, take the risk. <laughs> and he sits back and he goes, well, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> So anyway, the, the point of my long story is this is all predicated in this somehow, you know, somehow the perception of what the military was. Right. And, it, and as you all know, uh, if there is a critical, not just necessary, but essential strategic partner for CIA among the many strategic partnerships, certainly within the IC, but outside the IC, it's certainly CIA, regardless, doesn't have to be SAC, SAD in my day, you know, paramilitary. The strategic partnership is with the special operations community of the United States military. And if America has a machine that is paramount and preeminent in the world of clandestine operations, it's because of the intimacy between those two communities. Right. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Uh, we could not have done what we did without our special operations partners, whether they were white soft or black soft. Uh, and I'm convinced that our soft partners, if they were on, on this, I mean, don't get me wrong, CIA is an acquired taste. I get it. I get it. We're an acquired taste. We're kind of like caviar, very expensive, and we're not very flavorful, but, you know, we are nutritious. But the fact of the matter is that the partnership between our two communities was was what has brought us success in the counterterrorism domain. Yes, it's from the skills, the talent, the experience, and the application, the leveraging of that, and the dedication and commitment of the women and men who have given up years of their lives to become experts on terrorism and how to defeat it, how to mitigate it. Yes, I get that in both communities. But the reality is that it's that intersection, that power, that is more powerful than the arithmetic sum of our two halves. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is, I can say now, and, and I know you'd agree, and, and all of our colleagues who on this podcast who have had similar experiences would agree, you know, the, the collaboration and the cooperation between the two communities was not only mission success, but it was also life-saving at the same time. And, uh, and I can say that today, but back in the early days, it was really hard. Yeah. It was really hard. And it wasn't all 
anti-CIA attitude out of the special operations community, who in and of itself has a reason to be prideful and self-sufficient, mm -hmm. you know, and, and highly skilled and highly committed and courageous, very capable. But, you know, we learned an awful lot of lessons, and some of them hard won by blood and sand, uh, by learning how to work together. But, uh, you know, we began with baby steps, and those baby steps eventually got us to be, uh, you know, 100-meter sprinters, world-class sprinters, uh, by and, working uh, together. That, that relationship is now formalized under it's a defense-sensitive support system, right? Is that, isn't that yes. the, the bureaucratic mechanism that allows the two organizations yeah. to support one yeah. another? It allowed, essentially, for our audience, uh, it allowed, it's a, it's a, pro, a highly classified process to, to essentially share capabilities. Mm -hmm. You know, to, to, it's a very... It's bureaucratic, but it's very crisp, and it really allows essentially, you know, special operations community to go to special operations Amazon and order up some CIA stuff, and allows us to go to CIA Amazon and order up some soft stuff, you know, when we need it, and uh, and, and blending of authorities and blending of funding and. Yeah, consistent and, with American law. And I'll, 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 just give, I'll, I'll give a uh, a very public example for the audience out there. The the Bin Laden raid is alleged to be, uh, uh, or not alleged. I think Obama said so in his memoir that it was a CIA operation executed by JSOC. Yeah, and we actually did something similar to that when I was the chief of station in Iraq. It certainly wasn't of the import by any means, but we did test this process, where under my authority. We did something in a sovereign nation, non, a non-allied sovereign nation, uh, that that sovereign nation was unwilling to do at our request. So under our authority, you know, we positioned our special operations colleagues to go do something. Uh, and so, you know, learning how to work together in that very unique way right, through the defense-sensitive support system is, uh, was, you know, Again, this was all pioneering, right? Yeah, we were all we were all pioneers. You know, there's no, there was no book. You know, we go to chapter nine, how to work with JSOC. There, there was no such a thing. When, uh, and so go ahead. No, I'm sorry, but you know, you could you talk about this with like the CT, uh, like CTC, sort of this sniff test that went on between the CIA and the military. You know, initially because there was distrust on both sides. Was it similar? I mean, did you have that same experience with the FBI with the rendition program when you needed their like? Did did they look at you like you guys are all assassins and you're looking at them like you all have sticks up your asses? No, it's a good question. You know, were were there similar challenges with other strategic partners in the early days? And quite frankly, my my experience was no with with, with the FBI because the lanes in the road were quite clear. Uh -huh. We were the find we were the find and fix guys, and the FBI were the finish guys. Uh, yeah, we were part of the finishing process because we had presence overseas. We could deploy overseas. We had, we had, we had, uh, we had uh, point A to point B capabilities that the right. FBI didn't possess. This was before there were legal, legal attaches in every embassy in the world, and so the FBI was pioneering and having extraterritorial squads in, in the FBI and, and getting involved in in mitigating the criminal and terrorist threat before it got to. To inside the United States was pioneering for the FBI. I didn't find as much uh, much uh, attitudinal collision between uh, counterterrorism center. Others may have a different view. So uh, I was my, my was in the rendition business. It the, we the agents we worked with uh, were 
were just extraordinary. So your marriage then was not one of political necessity to bring two kingdoms no. together. No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, we, we both realized that, uh, you know, that they can't do what needs to be done by right. themselves. And we certainly realized that, you know, we can't acquire evidence, acquire, you know, transport fugitives back to federal custody and mount a, a prosecution. That, that's nobody wants CIA to do law enforcement. Right. Constitution doesn't like that. Right. You know, so stick to your lanes. We were able to do that. The friction comes in generally when when you have overlapping capabilities and overlapping authorities. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the, you know, if I won't do it on the podcast, but I could show you the Title 50, Title 10 scars I have <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the head when the MLE, you know, the military liaison element wars uh, in the early years. Um, and uh, but it's really where you had you were operating separately, but you had overlapping authorities. And sometimes you had uh, undisclosed overlapping presence right. in each other's, I use the term battle space, because I think it's probably best descriptive. And, and then we learned that actually that's a prescription for disaster. Right. Uh, and uh, so over time, we learned through exchange of hostages, and through just, <laughs> through just brute force uh, training and educating and beating the drum uh, that, uh, you know, the military, you know, and I, and I said all, all the time, I said, we need to identify opportunities to help our soft brothers, you know, succeed. And I like to think that they're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. When we observe behaviors that are not consistent with CIA normative behaviors, I urged all of my officers, take a deep breath, impute evil, because what they're doing may be very consistent with their mission, mm -hmm. their organization, and their own culture and authorities. Mm -hmm. And so doing a little investigative work before you enter into judgment mode mm -hmm. is the most helpful thing. Mm -hmm. And I told my officers every day, talk to any of the officers, serve with me in Iraq. I said, it's been a good day. When you can say that you helped another officer, CIA or not, mm -hmm. succeed, that by definition is a good day, you know. And so we learned an awful lot. And I think the uh, probably the classroom where we learned that was in the Bosnian theater of operations. And if I don't know whether you might be interested yeah, well, in, uh, yeah, was your uh, those early assignments before you got into the Balkans? I mean, you were branch chief of one, I think you said. And and what what were some of those early jobs before you got sent to the Balkans? Uh, I was a branch chief multiple times. I was a, what was called a group chief, which was you know one up. Think of a branch chief as being an infantry squad. Think of a a, a group chief as kind of being a little more than a platoon leader because you had much more than just you know. 20 people, but uh, I was also, uh, you know, I was base chief uh, a couple times. Uh, throughout the entirety of this process, I was a station chief four times. Um, and I might say as an aside for your audience, you gentlemen know this, many, many in the audience do, but some might not. You know, a typical CIA station is quite small and modest indeed. And we have a broad range of obligations and requirements. And uh, you know, a lot of that's very sensitive, and we can't talk about it here. But 
but you know, for the most part, they're they're right quite modest. I mean, these are not like Treadstone class CIA presidents. If I could use the Jason Bourne analogy, you know, Treadstone was evil. We're not evil. But the the fact of the matter is that uh, to your question, you know, I had really escalatory and graduate graduating, you know, leadership experiences both at Starfleet Command, you know, and in the field, which helped prepare me to be you know, my first chief of station job, uh, which was in the Balkans. I was another chief of station in, in the Balkans as well. And uh, I supported a number of programs in the Balkans. I was a base chief in the Balkans, you know, and, and that experience, you know, was where, quite frankly, you know, as, as all the people in the audience know, you know, America invested heavily in, in, built, in creating order out of chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the Dayton Accords, which I think a lot of us who experienced and who benefited from that. You know, it's a great way to end a war and end genocide, but it's a real crappy way to, to birth a country, you know, and try to imbue it with Jeffersonian pluralistic democ- democratic tendencies, mm-hmm. you know, with all the trauma that comes from genocide, you know. Uh, and so America's investment, which was quite controversial at the time, and I wasn't a policymaker, so I'm not. I'm not facile in the intimate policy history and all the bloodletting that probably came from making this decision to deploy U.S. military forces. Nobody wanted to put U.S. soldiers in harm's way. Nobody did. Nobody wanted to put U.S. forces into a situation eerily similar to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. What was the U.S. interest in Vietnam? There was no domino theory at play here in, in the Balkans. So, you know, rationalizers didn't even have that. There was no Gulf of Tonkin analogy, you know, and in, in, even though that was fake, if you read the Pentagon Papers, uh, you know, the none of that existed. This was an unforced initiative by the United States government on both the military side and on the non-military side, particularly in, in diplomatic and CIA. This was unforced. We weren't required. And by doing what we did, it did incur risk. We had no risk. And by putting Americans into that environment, you automatically, whether they're a 10th Special Forces group colleagues, whether they're for, you know, Dave Grange's divisions colleagues, whether they're in a multinational forces because we're part of S4 and UNPA4, I4, and then S4. I was there for all of that. And uh, this was America at its finest. This was a story that should make America's proud. It's going to get lost in the very necessary chaos and discussion on on Ukraine. But this was America at its finest. We didn't have to do this. No Americans were harmed by this genocide, weren't even injured. No Americans, the big debate, no American equities. And the reason why we made this investment is because of what makes America great. American core values, that's why we were there. We were the power projection of American core values into an environment that was absent of anything similar to American core values. You were having women and children that had just been slaughtered, hundreds of thousands of Bosniaks slaughtered on the battlefields and in the towns and the villages. And when you go and part of your job is to find mass graves, which wasn't hard, because you could see body parts sticking up out of the ground. That was the easiest part of what we were there to do. And CIA's presence was 
traditional CIA presence to be able to provide actionable intelligence to a wide variety of customers and to be able to inform the policymakers. Because again, America was pioneering its way through this very ambiguous, ill-defined environment, highly politically charged, you know, post-genocide trauma and, and anger and, and need for revenge. And Americans were there to kind of be the cadmium rod in this geopolitical reactor. And America did amazing work. They did American work. Just extraordinary. And I'm exempting myself from that. But in, the, in that battle space with, with CIA were our special operations colleagues. And I think uh, a number I'll, of I'll, you. I'll, get... point, I'll point out we've had a, a bunch of them on the show. Uh, George Hand was uh, one of the recce yeah. guys with Delta over there. Ron Moeller was there with the agency. Um, H.K. Roy, a pen name. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you knew him or not, but he, I think he yeah. opened the first uh, CIA station in Sarajevo. He was mm -hmm. obviously there, investigated uh, Sebrenica for the agency. They sent him over there. Jeez, um, who else have we talked to that was in the Balkans? I mean, qu quite a few people on the show in the past. Well, I worked very intimately with a, a young Army captain named Scotty Miller. Scott, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Scott, yeah. <laughs> yeah who, who some, some on the podcast may know. Yeah. Uh, you know, the future, you know, future Delta commander, future JSAC commander, future ISAF commander, you know, uh, uh, just a legendary, iconic American in his own right. But he was just a young captain, you know, sitting up there in a special mission unit in, in Tuzla. And so that was our, we learned very quickly that their culture and their, their ethos, you know, both with 10 special forces as well as special mission unit, their ethos mirrored our own. And as your guests that have preceded me have told you, uh, you know, we learned a lot. We learned, we learned how to respect each other's capabilities. We learned how to, without judgment, to understand shortcomings in capabilities, and understand strengths. We understood how to, how to respect each other, how to not be caught up in mythology and misperception. We were, we were sharing the mission. We were sharing the risk, such as it was. And our success was very dependent upon mutually supporting each other. Uh, and uh, and it was a way for us to really understand, you know, how, you know, for us to learn the hard, difficult to learn lessons on how to co cooperate, collaborate, how to share, and, and, and how to disagree in a respectful way that doesn't affect each other's mission or the relationship, you know. Uh, we, we, we learned that as young. I wasn't chronologically young because, you know, I had a job before CIA that wasn't working for dad. And so I was chronologically order, older. And so, but all of us, I was experientially young, you know, GS-15, uh, and which was young, you know, in, in CIA speak. Uh, and uh, so, you know, the, the opportunity to, to undertake this exciting mission, to represent the ideal of America to an environment that is absent of any concept of American idealism. And to be able to save lives, to be able to bring order out of chaos, to help United States foreign policy, to bring genocide to an end and to do something about that genocide 
and in many cases to bring the perpetuators and the perpetrators of that genocide to justice. The American presence in, in the Balkans was all of that, was all of that. And all of us that were part of there, Ron Moeller and the other gang, you know, we're all proud to be part of that because it's one of the reasons why we signed up for this. Yeah. Me, granted, as a draftee to the agency, but I could have left. I could have retired and not signed on to the agency. Right. But the opportunity to spend decades with extraordinary people doing extraordinary things in extraordinary places is not an opportunity you want to ever turn down. And so I was smart enough at the time to be able to say, no, you know what? I'm not interested in making money. And at my time, when I took an appointment with CIA, I forfeited my military retirement. It wasn't put in escrow, and they pay me when I leave federal service. There was a dual compensation offset statute, which lasted for eight years in my CIA, CIA service, that I forfeited my military oh, wow. retirement. In exchange for yeah, it was all all civil service pay. They yeah. eventually, what are, what are they called? Not revoked legislation. That they, they, they whatever repeal. they do to laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Repeal. That's right. Yeah. Repeal. Uh, they repealed that because they realized they were, you know, they were you know essentially disincentivizing some incredibly talented. You know, yeah. military officers from joining CIA. It's almost it's know? almost punitive in a way to say you can't yeah. you don't get your military retirement because now you're because now you're doing this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the bottom line of my my long oration and my my bloviation, and I apologize to you gentlemen and, and to all the participants of the podcast. But uh you can tell I'm kind of passionate about what we did there. And uh, we couldn't have done it alone. This was a whole of government. Uh, and a spectacular accomplishment by the United States of America at a very difficult time. You know, political political turmoil in America coming out of the Vietnam experience. You know, it was the first time that the modern army, you know, the reformed army, you know, CIA came through its own reformation, the church and pike committee hearings, and uh -huh. all in the crown jewels and all of that. You can go back and study that. We were a totally different agency than we were back then. The United States Army Special Forces to come from my day, you know, whereas an alternate specialty and you're a shitty SF officer and a shitty traditional officer at the same time. Worse yet, you could, you're could you a shitty aviator and you're a shitty tanker. You know, you weren't good at both. That was great. You always tapped a guy on the helmet and said, how long have you been flying? Well, I just came out of a tank armor company command. You're going, oh, wow. How about having that warrant officer take the controls? Right. You know, it's that, it's that kind of thing. And so this was a professional army. This was a professionalized intelligence community that had learned a lot of lessons, had a lot to learn. And out of that came a lot of incredible connective tissue that ultimately that we all who went to Afghanistan, you know, benefited from and, and saved lives and accomplished a you lot know, of missions. Douglas, I, that's really, I, that's really interesting because I feel like that's a story that doesn't really get told. First off, Bosnia is kind of, Bosnia is kind of a, a forgotten endeavor, uh, you know, across, I mean, I was, I was in the military when Bosnia was going on, but, but to me, it was just, Something that a few people... Yeah, it wasn't huge. Yeah, a few people went to, you know, it was this random thing. But I think that, at least for me, a lot of times, the perception is 9-11, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, like 9 was, was that was that formative moment for, you know, uh, special operations and yes. the, the, the CIA. But 
but you're saying that it, it goes it goes back to actually Bosnia, where those where those roots are first are first laid, you know, and and it grew from there. You bet. And uh, I believe that neither CIA nor our special forces, both white and black, uh, special operators, both white, white and black, uh, would have been able to be as 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 responsive. Uh, and as and as flexible and as um, and, and us included, if we hadn't had that experience in in, in the Balkans, uh, yep, there's still a lot of lessons to be learned. Yeah, there's some latency, you know, and that's very understandable. Sure, but we shortened the timeline from orders to to, to action, right? By what we what we all experienced uh, out of uh, out of the Bosnian theater. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And, you know, like we appreciate you sort of pointing that out because, again, that is like Bosnia doesn't get much attention. They were, they were pioneering the manhunting that came to dominate what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right, which really is the yeah. fine fix finish cycle. Yeah. 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 And we and we didn't do we didn't call it that. You know, right. We didn't have Stan, Stan McChrystal creating the you right. know, the, the de definition of F3A. Right. 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 Uh, but but we were functionally developing that kind of process, I guess, you know, in addition to national intelligence collection and provision to policymakers and ambassadors, because there's a lot of political interest in, in, in making this work. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm under no illusion. The impact of the United States from 9-11 dwarfed, you know, you know what we did in Bosnia. And so I'm not offended at all that it has kind of fallen beneath American consciousness. But for those of us that have experienced that, I think anybody on this podcast and anybody who anybody talks to and carries some of my remarks will find a, a deep resonance uh, between what we all experience, I, I'm I'm exempting the conventional unit because we didn't have a lot to do with, you know, the big armored divisions and mechanized divisions that rotated out of in and out of Bosnia. But I'm talking about, you know, our special forces and special mission unit. Uh, you know, we we learned a lot and we became fast friends, tight colleagues uh, through that experience, and it's it saved us a lot of time and a lot of lives on yeah. a future battlefield what, what was, that we uh... could not possibly imagine. What yeah. was the next assignment then after your Balkan years, Doug? Uh, let's see. In in uh, Sarajevo, my my third time in Sarajevo, um, I was promoted to the senior intelligence service unexpectedly, given the fact that you know <laughs> most of my background was you know I didn't go to George Washington University. Mom and Dad didn't work for CIA. Uh, you know I didn't speak five languages. I I, I didn't I hadn't you know, spent an extraordinary amount of time overseas outside the military context. And and so I considered, and it's very true, and I know it sounds very begging for compliments, but I considered myself part of the blue collar of, of the directorate of operations. Uh, I didn't come with the with that kind of Washington education yeah, and yeah. development kind of kind of background. And so I figured I was I was the military equivalent of uh, you know in the Navy you'd say a Mustang right right and I was the I was the CIA equivalent of kind of the you know the E six who went to OCS right and became a commission officer you know but having said that you know the unexpected totally unexpected I think a lot of a lot of women and men who get promoted to the senior service uh, are, are grateful 
but they're, they're, they don't expect it. But I think they probably know whether they're made of the right stuff. And so the promotion isn't a surprise. And they get enough feedback on what they have to do to improve, to make themselves more competitive. And they get a lot of interaction by their senior mentors and chain of command. And, uh, you know, I guess I got some of that. I don't remember, but I didn't take any offense if I didn't because I didn't think I was worthy of it, quite frankly. You know, and I appealed to my boss. I appealed passionately to my boss. Please don't bring me back at the end of my command tour from... uh, uh, to, to Starfleet Command. You know, I, I don't have, my lightsaber is just not going to work back there. My, I'm, my Jedi Knight, you know, fire, passion, it will go disappear. Look, send me to any crappy place you want where you need a good, solid field leader. I'll go lead myself again, as I did my first leadership. I made every argument I possibly could, and it seemed to fall on deaf ears. And the next thing I know is I get a call from a guy you may, may know, Jose Rodriguez, who was the DDO at the time, who said, uh, I got some good news and I got some bad news. The good news is uh, we've uh, selected you uh, for promotion to the senior intelligence service. The bad news is you're in a GS-15 position. <laughs> you're coming back to Starfleet Command. And I and he said, "So you're coming back to the counterterrorism center." And I was the deputy for the director of ops for CTC, and I did that, you know, when I came back. That was my first SIS job. Um, and I had a couple. I had uh, I, a couple assignments. I, I think I was in, you know, what's now known as the Center for Cyber Intelligence. I think I dabbled in that a bit. Somebody said. Well, you got a, you got a graduate degree in, in, in an arcane science. You're perfect for this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe. Uh, I don't remember any of that. I can't even read my dissertation uh, and understand what I wrote. <laughs> and uh, so I did that for a little bit. And uh, I had another assignment in there. Memory escapes me. Um, I, I oh, It was a, a highly classified project that I worked Um which was known to very, very few. And uh, it was quite an, an exciting thing. The cool thing is, is you can apply the cult of secrecy and you can emanate that. You can exude the cult of secrecy and that makes you very special. The bad news is you can't cooperate and collaborate with anybody because you can't tell anybody what you're doing. Right. So you got to do all the work yourself. And that sucks. <laughs> right. I'm just telling you. So, <laughs> so team building, how you get a team of one. Right. You know, okay, this is great. This is great. But... Uh, if, I, if memory serves me correctly, um, I went from there uh, back to Iraq. We didn't talk about my formative Iraq experience yeah, yeah. Well, in 2003 we, and 4. Yeah, before we, we jump to that. Iraq, I want to ask you, because uh, you told me after 9-11, like two days later, you were you were gone. You were like out there. I was gone. Can you tell, yeah, tell yeah. us what happened on 9-11 for you? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so on 9-11, you know, I kind of I, I, I kind of skipped over some history here. And, and I, I attribute that to my age. Uh, you know, I'm 72 years old, so I'm becoming a little mentally infirm here. I don't impute that to all 72-year-olds, but to me. Um, so I was in Bosnia as part of, as I said, you know, as I gave you more than you ever wanted to hear about America's presence in Bosnia. So 9-11, we're sitting there, and the first aircraft hit the tower. And we all rushed in to, to scramble to watch TV. And I remember to myself, I, it was it was just shocking. And I remember 
the way I rationalized and dealt with that sickening feeling in my stomach was I said, oh, this is a navigation error. This is some pilot, you know, pilot had a heart attack. You know, never occurred to me, even though I had done counterterrorism for like 10 years, you know, the fact of the matter, I was just sitting there, you know, mystified, yeah. shocked, mystified, sickened by that. Uh, and it wasn't, but, uh, you know, after, you know, America's policymakers really digested what had happened, you know, from the attacks on, on 9-11, the two aircraft, Flight 93, and the attack on the Pentagon. And ironically, one of the officers of my uh, cross-agency, large cross-agency team that I had in the field, uh, from DOD, from, from uniformed military, multiple civilian agencies, and yet and some of our special forces colleagues, uh, so we had a pretty powerful team. Uh, one of my team members happened to be named Mike Spann, uh, who met, who left immediately because SAD called him back immediately, an SAD officer. And Mike, of course, is all of us know, is the first American to die in the line of duty, you know, in the expulsion of Al-Qaeda and, and Taliban from Afghanistan. Mike was really just a spectacular guy. He was, he was everything you'd ever want in, in any kind of officer, a, a gentleman warrior, you know, just extraordinary, gracious, courteous, and yet steel hard. You know, of course, he was a former Marine, right? And uh, so I lost him immediately. There was like hours, if I recall correctly. Boom, he was summoned back, resent him back. A couple of days later, after they made a decision to mount the U.S. response, of course, you had Jawbreaker, which, uh, you know, you've covered extensively. Uh, and my job, I was immediately summoned up to U.S. UCOM to work with then, to me, a very unknown uh, SEAL one star, who some of you may have heard named Bill McRaven, who was the commander of SOC UR. And we were trying to figure out what it was that the Europe, U.S. European Command and SOC UR needed to do in response, you know, because the attack on the homeland was not going to be the only attack. And it certainly hadn't, because there have been three embassies hammered hard. The USS Cole, Cobar Towers. We had all kinds of, of explosive history mm -hmm. in the business of terrorism up to this point. And the other thing that my job was to be able to work with SOCUR to prepare the, the, the support, the special operations support requirements, because of the, the emerging soft contribution to uh, America's response. Then I went back to... Uh, uh, back to Washington, D.C. To, 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 you know, to, to equip myself, to gun up and get ready to go to Afghanistan myself. And I, and I, and I, and I remember one of your guests, I, I can't, I can't remember who, uh, Mick maybe, um, who, who said, who talked a little bit about it. I think you asked him the question, well, tell us about the time that you were preparing to go to Afghanistan. Mine was spending hours in REI. I remember going in there and the place was stripped. I think Justin you know, Sapp I mean, was talking yeah, about just, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember going in there and, and, you know, one of the REI sales sales ladies comes up to me and says, sir, can I help you? And I go, yeah, I got this list. I need to get all this stuff. I'll pay cash. I need all this list, all this stuff, and I need it right now. And she goes, you're like the, you're like the 50th guy that's been in here. <laughs> I think I think all that stuff. I think they bought all that stuff. So you know, I had to run around, you know, and others like me that were in the in the in the latency part of the response. You know, the month after sort of thing. And uh, so you know, you're buying sleeping bags and and all kinds of stuff because again, 
you know, as I, as I think a number of your guests have, you know, CIA was not, you know, paramilitary things was not de rigueur for CIA, right? It is today, but back then it wasn't. It was an aberration. It was an afterthought. Mm -hmm. Those were the officers that would get you in trouble because those retired Special Forces E-8s that were now GS-12s and 13s. There's no good that's going to come from a ground branch, a ground branch team. I've been a COS a couple of times with ground branch guys. I know the mythology. Having come from a community, I wasn't as fearful. But no good could come from having ground branch guys in your country. You know, you know, your 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 family aren't safe. The animals aren't safe. Food's not safe. There's going to be no alcohol left. You know, all of that kind of bizarre thing. You know, so it, there was. So CIA was not prepared to, to go. I when I when I had my team in Afghanistan, we had a Sony Vio laptop through an encryptor to an Inmarsat. <laughs> we were creating cable traffic in Microsoft Word. <laughs> you know, yeah, we had Satcom, and that was just to tell the gang back at Starfleet that we had a couple files for them, and then. Perhaps maybe in another episode sometime, you know, if you ever want me back, I can tell you a little more about, you know, that kind of pioneering that was done by many who, who did way more than I did in way more dangerous places. You know, my my gang was in Asadabad, you know, way up in the southern end of the Konar Valley, north of Jalalabad. But, uh, you know, we were learning how to how to do this. We were, you know, creating capability on the fly. You know, and I was just a cog in that machine. I wasn't a driver. I wasn't, a, you know, a, a pioneer leader. I wasn't taking the decisional risks. You know, I was just excited and happy, you know, coming out of that Bosnian experience flush with pride, you know, wanting to, you know, be part of, of America's response, you know, to bring justice and righteous revenge to those that had, you know, killed our citizens and those of other nations who had despoiled our country you know, forever. And so, you know, I like all of us, you know, who served there, proud to be part of that, whether in the early days or in the even more dangerous, quite frankly, you know, days that most of you served in, in Afghanistan. We're, we could even go downtown and have dinner in an Afghan restaurant, you know, without getting blown up and shot and stabbed, you know, where many of you weren't able to do that. But, uh, you know, it was, and we immediately began to apply the experiences that I just discussed at length, you know, and the lessons that we learned, you know, in that, you know, what turned out to be a much more Pacific battle space known as the Balkans. But, uh, you know, who do you find in places like Afghanistan? You know, no longer Captain Scotty Miller. I think he was Major Scotty Miller, maybe Lieutenant Colonel. So you found it was, you know, as I think we all used the expression, same dudes, different places. Right, right. You know, and yeah. uh, and, and now I obviously don't don't mean by using the term dude that it's just all men because a number of courageous female officers and operators have served as well and were part of our growth. Uh, but uh, you know, we benefited from I think what we learned. You know, yeah, yeah. And what was the trajectory like for you when you got into theater? And it, you make it sound like were you in the background, kind of running logistics for these guys, or what? What was your role? No, no, I was, I was, a, I was part of the uh, operational presence there. Uh, so my my 
engaging with Sock Year on, on the support side. That ended when I left and I went back and I became part of the operational CIA operational package. I want to say initially we had, you know, probably the sum total, I think, the guy you should have on here was Hank, Hank Rupton's deputy, a guy named John Massey, and, uh, a, an amazing American uh, in his own right. He has a little blemish because he's a Naval Academy graduate, but, and he's a nuclear guy, too. You know, he's a nuclear guy. Oh, he's you can a, overlook he, things what, like that. Who was that guy, Rick Over, or was that, the, was that a German pilot in World War One? I? I don't remember. Who was the guy who started nuclear Navy? I don't know. The Navy is, is irrelevant to me. But the, uh, but, uh, you know the total numbers, but I think we only had like I think it was only like twenty eight, you know, in the initial initial presence there. So, but we had a huge force multiplier in uh, in in uh, you know the uh, the 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 G's and and uh, Swick speak um, the G's from the Northern Alliance, and uh, so the picture that you so kindly put on, on the advertisement for this was my leadership team with my team. It was myself, a Ground Branch guy. And we had a hundred Northern Alliance, you know, colleagues that were there to take the fight to the enemy. And that was not unique at all. And uh, so there were very few in the beginning. So I was in Afghanistan which, as an operator. Which team were you guys on? It was called Team Mike. And uh, it was on in, uh, like I said, it was in Masadabad, the southern end of the Konar Valley. What was interesting is we occupied a, uh, a totally shredded uh, Soviet military, uh, Russian military installation. I could motorized artillery. It was at a Mujahideen. It like literally just eradicated it off the face of the earth. But I plowed through a bunch of rubble. And I found, because thank you for the climate there, which is absent of rain, uh, I found a real Russian military map with hand-drawn military symbols Whoa. Uh, to show where they positioned you know, rifle companies and, and infantry platoons in the mountains around around Asadabad. Uh And so I have that framed, you know, on the wall of my I love me and I love you wall uh, here in, in, in New Mexico, in our New Mexico home. But I was an operator to, to your question. And uh, I, I came back and I was the acting because we didn't have a permanent station. I was the acting deputy chief of station uh, my second go around. And so that took me through the end of 2002. I became a chief of station uh, after that for a year, and then Iraq happened. And then I got a call from the deputy director of operations who said, have your wife pack you out. I want you, I want you in Kuwait in 24 hours. <laughs> so that, that's how things are done. That, that, that's not crazy. <laughs> what, yeah. You know, I know that like like bases like Asadabad and then going into Iraq when it first started, like those were very unique circumstances. But you talk right. about going back to Starfleet Command um, with your lightsaber, and I I love the I love the collision of the two worlds. But <laughs> but you know when you talk about Starfleet Command, obviously you're talking about Langley. What was it like yes. being at Langley that was different than being at a base or a station somewhere else in the world? Well, I, I suppose it's kind of, you all are military veterans, so you'll understand them as well, the vast majority of your audience. It's the same thing when they go, okay, you're going to the Pentagon. What? You know, your first reaction is this, you want to go vomit. You want to go, you want to go puke in the street. 
you know, what did I do wrong? You know, and then what happens is you end up serving. And I, and, and I jokingly am very critical, as are many officers, you know, who are operators. You know, there's life forms in CIA that love Starfleet Command. Right. You know, they, they like to commute and they like to live and they don't want to be overseas. Vast majority of them are, are, you know, hunger for the core business of what CIA does, whether you're an operator, or an analyst, support officer, a tech ops officer, or something in between. But there are many officers who, who don't need to go overseas and make a seminal and existential contribution to what we're trying to do overseas. And they're very necessary. And just like service in the Pentagon, and granted, you know, I was in the Pentagon as an 05. And for those of you that have never served in the Pentagon as an 05, there is no lower life form in the Pentagon than <laughs> yeah. an army a, lieutenant colonel. A colonel. It's like being a private, right? It's like being a private. You don't even you don't even get donuts for generals. You right. get donuts for, for 06s. Right. You know, hey, you go over there and uh, attract the insects away from those of us who are making, <laughs> right. you know, doing some real work. You go over there, Colonel. You go sit there in a the corner. Go get me a donut. Yeah, sprinkly. I like to want sprinkles <laughs> on my donut and uh, cream in the coffee. And let me know when it comes back because I don't want to cold. And so there's no lower, you know, you know, in, you know, just insignificant life form than a, a lieutenant colonel in the Pentagon. But what you do see is the same thing that I found out in my service. And I began life at Starfleet Command. So I understood and it made me a better field leader. I understood the culture of headquarters. I understood the challenges that they were facing. I understood the sludge in the machine and why the sludge is not capricious sludge. It is inexorable, just necessary slowness of glacial times. That's uh, just part of large bureaucracies, even crisp bureaucracies like CIA, which is probably the crispest of them all, without question. You know, you have 16 days after 9-11, you have Gary Schroen and Jawbreaker on the ground, right? No other institution yeah, in the, the, the agency... could have done that has uh, correct me if i'm wrong doug but i mean the only political appointees you guys really deal with is like the director, the director. and maybe a chief of staff and yeah director and the deputy director are political appointees and then it, it, when I, I had someone tell me once about when, when you guys deployed for that first afghanistan trip like the the very like short fuse on the chain of command like from the president to the director to maybe like the head of SAD or, or something like that. I mean, you tell me, Doug, but I mean, it, it was a very short fuse going from point A to point B. You, you, had it, you hit it right on the head. And, and that, that, that short interval between the most senior decision makers in our government and the plebeian operator base chief like me on the ground, that was built and with great risk because all of a sudden, you had a guy like me talking to a guy like George Tennant. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and you could only imagine that George taking advice from a GS-15 versus taking advice from SIS 4, 5s, and 6, advice that is well-formed, well-studied, well-rung out, well-read teamed, and all you got is you know, opinions from a, a wellspring of opinion, GS-15, <laughs> you know, who, who thinks that he knows everything there is to know that's useful for the director, you know, kind of thing. And the same thing happened when I was chief of station in, in Iraq. Uh, conversations with uh, Leon Panetta, for example, when he was the director. Yeah. And, uh, Leon, and Leon's deputy, you know. Uh, and uh, so 
that shortening of the of of the the, the chain of information and the chain i guess what was it uh you know that that air force colonel created that oodle loop thing right oh, i don't yeah. even know what those stand for but you know at least one of those O's is like operate orient decide and act yeah 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 for us it it was act and then engage sometimes <laughs> uh and other times it was where you know the director understood the the competence and he had trust and confidence at all levels of his chain of command and and so you know being able to take a phone call from the director of the central intelligence agency whose par writer is the president of the united states the pre-dni uh you know that shows that the agency has a trust and confidence because if they didn't have that, they wouldn't have been able to shorten that decision-making timeline, right? You know, because nobody would have allowed a guy like me to talk and provide advice and recommendations to senior to officers on the seventh floor of CIA or directly to the DDO or to the to the director of the counterterrorism center. Doug, you know, uh, I'm going to ask you about Iraq in one second. I just want to uh, pay a bills here real quick and tell our viewers about SAP Gear. They're a veteran-owned uh, company. Uh, they're a safety asset protection retail store that specializes in handmade and unique survivability products. Each innovative product is designed to be discreet while focusing on functionality. One of the company's product highlights is the GTFO wrist strap that's made out of tungsten. Uh, it has a tungsten carbide bead on it with a last, uh, on an elastic shock band. And uh, what you can do is snap this thing like a little slingshot, and it'll break out the car window. Where is that wristband? Or tempered glass. Like, oh, is it? Oh, I mean, we have the wristband. I mean, they have some nice gloves, the little operator gloves uh, that are way better than the Nomex stuff we used to wear. They've got this badass little um, information blocker when you're charging. Like, if you have to your charge USB. your cell phone when you're in an Uber or someplace or a public place, you know, people can steal your information when you plug that data cable data slash power cable into your phone so you can get this uh great little blocker from them like check out sap gear they have some amazing stuff on there all kinds of like counterintelligence uh you know a lot of great gear and uh, they have like do they have a jedi knight life lightsabers can i get a new lightsaber they they uh they might because they have some amazing yeah. stuff there um yeah so sap sapgear.com it's sapgear.com, and you use the uh, promo code TEAM to get 15% off. So sapgear.com and the promo code TEAM to get 15% Check out their stuff. Off. I guarantee you, you it, it's like it's like the fun... Uh, James Bond stuff. It's the fun James Bond stuff. Uh, what, what are those... Uh, not uh, sharper... Not What are those um, uh, stores that I'm thinking of that have, like, the Sharper Image or Brooks and whatever? These are, like, these are, like, the cool guy stuff where, you know... Is a lot of fun stuff, a lot of very practical and useful stuff. And and then the other thing I want to tell you guys about real quick before we get back to Doug is uh, our Patreon page. If you guys are interested in supporting the show, if you want to get access to bonus episodes and segments and get access to all of our episodes ad-free, uh, there's a link down in the description of this video or podcast uh, to our Patreon page, and you can jump on there right now. And uh, we really appreciate all the people who support the stream. Absolutely. So, it, uh Doug, uh, back to you. Uh, tell us about, you told us that you got pulled into Iraq on about a 24-hour notice. Uh, tell us about that experience. Well, again, uh, you know, 
I need to, I need to if full disclosure. I'm on the record of having said in public on TV uh, and in print in print that I thought the invasion of Iraq was the worst foreign policy decision in, in modern American history. It opened it geo geopolitical tectonic plates that we had no idea what we were what we were creating because we had no plan. And the notion that we could create, you know, pluralistic Jeffersonian democracy in Iraq with all the sectarian, vicious sectarian right. fighting. And anytime you remove a brutal dictator, you know, how do dictators rule very brutally? And they, and you ask, hey, you're a dictator. Why do you got to be so brutal? Because I'd be dead if I didn't. Because I got to keep, you know, my hands on the pressure cooker. That lid's going to fly right up. So anyway. Uh, I was at the time, I wasn't quite as, as, I didn't have that insight, but I was proud again, you know, to be part of the next grand American experiment to move American foreign policy and to kind of be part of a cog in the, in the new CIA machine in, in the next big, big thing that we were doing, which was Iraq and CIA played, a, and I, I don't go through the details, but there's probably some people that could probably give you a good, good description um, of what we faced, but we accomplished an awful lot. We were a lean, mean CIA machine in, in Iraq. And, uh, and it was a bad time in, in the beginning because uh, apparently there were a lot of people there that didn't like Americans. Uh, you know, there are a lot of Kurds and a number of Shia in the beginning who were appreciative that we removed this yeah. brutal dictator. But there are apparently a lot of Sunnis who had, took great offense at our removal of Saddam and our, our uh, destruction of the entire Sunni socialist, socialist system mm -hmm. uh, of power and wealth and, and support that existed in, of course, the Ba'ath Party. Uh, we were taking, I have, a, it's a video, but it's, it's audio because it's at night. You, we, we would take when we were first there, 76 indirect fire shots at night at what was the American presence inside uh, the green, what would ultimately become the green zone. It was just a gigantic impact area. 76, you could count them all from artillery to rockets to mortars. And it was just a very, very difficult time. Uh, and we were getting hit every, every night. And then, of course, as the American military presence went from, you know, from, you know, uh, invaders, and I say that in a very positive way, not in a negative way. And then as they consolidated their gains and as they were able to, to really start to deal with some of these threats, then life strangely and bizarrely turned to normal where you could actually go downtown, you know, along the river and actually have some mazgoof you know, in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, the last time we ate in this restaurant, you know, 30 days later, it was totally blown up by a suicide bomber. And that was that was late in 2004, I want to say. Um, but uh, I considered Iraq to be, you know, again, uh, you know, just an opportunity to uh, do a lot. And when we were sort of missionary like, I guess, at the time, myself included bringing some kind of better outcome for the Iraqi people. Maybe that's naive. I, I believe that was naive in myself uh, at the time. But, uh, you know, the American soldiers, uh, tremendous courage, 
under very adverse circumstances. And particularly as the years went on, uh, you know, 2007, hard year in Iraq, hard year. But we were there again in the early days, you know, our natural partners. We were there with our natural partners, special mission unit. And uh, of course, it was Stan McChrystal. And, uh, and who was himself transforming a JSOC, which was the national mission force, into the premier counterterrorism force that we now know and love today. You know, find, fix, and finish. And he and his staff battle engineered, you know, the shortening that that information circle from from intel to actioning that intel, where you pull guys off the objective. And many of you know this far better than me. And many of you participated in this, you know, where you'd be pulling a guy off an objective and you'd be interrogating them in the air on the way back. Another assault force is waiting to action that before they're even back. Mm -hmm. And so you all of a sudden have one force coming back, another force going in. And that requires a a professional, competent, lethal choreography that is unparalleled in, in, in military experience, in mm-hmm. my view. And it showcases just some extraordinary capabilities. And so in the end, you know, that was intelligence driven. You know, you needed intelligence to make that happen. That was the fuel that, that, it, that started that process. And it was the fuel that kept it going. And JSOC pioneered a huge amount of that. And, and CIA for our, to our natural partnership, you know, we were feeding into that as well. And the CIA presence, and I'm not going to talk about numbers, but, you know, the CIA presence expanded dramatically uh, in Iraq. And eventually, you know, we became the size of what you could argue was an IFTR brigade, which isn't much for the Army, but for CIA is a extraordinary and investment you were the ops chief over there early on i was the ops chief in the beginning and then i was chief of station in eight nine and ten got an opportunity to see liberation to transition of sovereignty mm-hmm. and so it was interesting to see you know kind of those bookend experiences uh you know and uh you know challenging to say the least Chall- largest u.s embassy in the history of diplomacy and as my CV, my bio rep at the time, at the time, was the largest station in the, in the agency's history. I have I have a ton of questions for you, Doug. Some of them you may even be able to answer. Um, I'll try. <laughs> uh, you, I, I think you said you were chief of station four times throughout your career. What yeah. were the unique challenges of running intel, running case officers out into a war zone like Baghdad? How, how did that differ than some of your previous assignments? Well, if, if, for example, if you were a case officer in Geneva, you know, uh, one, you weren't likely to get killed on your way to an agent meeting. Your agent was not likely to be killed while you were meeting him along with yourself, and you weren't likely to be killed coming back. Okay, And that's not meant to disparage yeah, yeah. traditional espionage by any means. That It is hard. It's more than just meeting a dude, okay? And we, you could talk about it. I could talk about that at length, which would be digressive for what you're trying to accomplish here. But the reality is we had to take the traditional elements of espionage, the, the tradecraft that worked for CIA for generations, since 1947, and we had to 
carefully adapt that, tailor it and modify it so that we could still do the business of meeting human beings and extracting intelligence through that meeting without bringing extraordinary risk to that individual that is working on behalf of the United States objectives and our own officers. And how do you do that? Because inherently that has to be a non-public, very secret enterprise and in a non-lethal environment in the Geneva's, you know, in the Paris, you know, Berlin's of the world, extraordinary counterintelligence pressure. Don't get me wrong. Moscow, impossible to, to work there. You know, it takes an incredibly special officer to do that. I would never be able to do that. I was never able, I would never have been good enough. So I, I wouldn't have done well in the traditional espionage business. Uh, but because of my military background, because of my counterterrorism experience in CIA, I think I was well experienced enough to be a constructive part of the adaptive process to figure out how does CIA do business without getting people killed mm-hmm. and still providing, you know, valuable and intelligence for the policymaker and actionable intelligence, you know, for the warfighter. And uh, so we had to do a lot of a lot of adaptation, a lot of modification. And kudos to the officers who took those risks when we were trying new stuff for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, you had no idea. I don't say you implying that I was part of that. They had no idea that they were going to come back from that. Right. Point. You know, did you no feel uh, that your mission over there was shifting from the agency's traditional strategic intelligence mission to now collecting more like tactical level intelligence? Oh, without a doubt. And that that caused and, and that was very necessary. Quite frankly, as I as I told my officers all the time and I reinforced it with our colleagues, whether it's in Afghanistan, whether it's in Bosnia, for that matter, or in Afghanistan or in Iraq uh, or in Syria later. Uh, you know, I said job one is force protection. Mm-hmm. Keeping American soldiers alive is job one. Everything else is totally subordinate to that. Top priority. We will spare no effort to keep American women and men alive. That is a sacred obligation, and we must do that. That is job one. Nothing else can be done. The second priority ends up being providing the intelligence so that our military partners could smoke on the battlefield those that are creating the force protection issues that we were trying to mitigate. And so job one, force protection. Job two, actionable intelligence to the warfighter. Then, of course, CIA, unlike, you know, our our military colleagues that are very focused on CT, very focused on COIN, uh, you know, we had the broader range. Broader. We had to worry about the stability of Iraq. We had to worry about Iran. We had to worry about Saudi Arabia. We had to worry about the Gulf Arab, Arab states. We had to worry about the third country presence there. And even though Baghdad was an incredibly challenging environment, there were still other embassies that, are, that were there and, and other diplomats. And they all played a role in either helping us or impeding us. And so we had to pay attention to them and had to engage them. And so the broad, incredibly complex and diverse mission that CIA has everywhere and every every place that it is was complicated and made more existential by job one and job two. 
And, uh, and that required a very special structure, a very special culture, and more importantly, some just extraordinary women and men who were really, who volunteered to come out to that kind of environment, you know, thrived in, in most cases in that kind of environment. And it really says a lot about, you know, those young and often inexperienced CIA officers who I hold in the highest of regard mm -hmm. because they volunteered to get involved in something that they had absolutely no idea right. what the conse personal consequences were. I think as soldiers, kind of right. like recognize. You expect that, that yeah. You kind of expect that, right? And and uh, and and but in in uh, in CIA because you know we didn't train for war, mm -hmm. right? We didn't train for war, and and not uh, not uh, you know not uh, not a, a major portion of CIA, you know, got the Afghan experience. So there were officers who rogered up to leave family, single moms single parents, single officers, married officers, huge families, small families, you know, elder care issues, you know, all of the obligations of life. And these remarkable officers were willing to set that aside to undertake a task and put themselves into an environment that they had absolutely no conscious appreciation for. Yeah. And it was such a dynamic and unpredictable environment that you could think that the uh, this neighborhood of Baghdad was actually pretty safe. Yeah. And then you find out that you assessed wrong, you know, because it changed literally last minute. And so I sit and just hold in the highest regard. I obviously hold my military colleagues in extraordinary high, high regard, and that goes without saying, but, but you know, our, our, our CIA officers. And what's interesting, I mean, you'd think you had an infantry brigade size investment in Iraq, okay? And, and I had a, a I had like the 12th largest air force in the world. I had everything from, uh, you know, shall we say traditional uh, CIA authorities and what I'll say euphemistically is non-traditional military authorities, shall we say uh, aggressive authorities, uh, which we used uh, in times when our military colleagues by policy were precluded from exercising you know, their own uh, aggressive authorities, shall we say. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a, a large number of officers that, that, that were there that, you know, that, that adapted and they learned and they worked together and uh, they were sharing the mission with their own colleagues and they were sharing the mission with their military counterparts and they were committed to each other's success. And I know I sound like I'm a Pollyannish guy and I'm over-exaggerating and and for those that haven't had that experience yet, I understand why you'd probably think I'm being a little dramatic, but I can't begin to tell you that I, I don't think I'm exaggerating very much. If I am, it's not by intent, but it's just Doug, I, by, I, I don't know. I, I'm curious about, you know, your, because, and this is sort of fast forwarding a bit to ask you to reflect on something that you may have thought while you were there at a future date, but you did eventually become the deputy director of the DIA. The DIA was very active, but also the DIA doesn't get much credit for anything at all, really. Um, but they were very active there in Baghdad, uh, particularly in those early years and everything. Uh, being at the station and being being the, the big dog of the intelligence 
world as, you know, as the CIA is. What did you have an impression, awareness and knowledge, opinions of the DIA presence there? Uh, the DIA, I mean, obviously there wasn't. Uh, the answer was uh, strangely, yes. Uh, I had a positive view of the military, irrespective of what part of the Defense Department you came from. So, right. so I was predisposed to look for the positive. And maybe I, that maybe didn't make me unique, but it may put me in a select uh, part of, I think, the CIA workforce. Second was, you know, I had found in my formative experience with the power and majesty of the DOD was in Bosnia, where I had a major defense human, defense case officer operator presence there. Uh-huh. Uh, all of whom had gone through the, the formative, same formative experience, operational certification experience that, that we CIA officers went through uh, in the same location, actually, with a shared cadre of trainers and, and educators uh, and in, in the same environment against the same tasks. So we were virtually identical life forms. And so we were now serving together. Right. So I had an extraordinary positive. Plus, there was significant defense human separate presence there. There was a strategic base that they had. And then there was this thing, I, I think, called Eskimo base that was there that was doing their thing. And the intimacy and the cooperation was, was absolutely important. And I think any of those base chiefs would tell you that CIA was, was a really good partner because we really respected their capabilities and what we did. I carried that. And so, yes, there was a DIA presence in Iraq. It was right across the street at FOB Union 3, if I recall correctly. And I would go all there all the time as a CIA station chief with a, with a major amount of presence, a massive diversity of responsibilities. Investing my time was an expression of what I thought was valuable. Right, right. I went over to that little detachment almost every day. Wow. And, and I, I developed this close partnership. And interestingly enough, that detachment was not just what you and I now call defense clandestine service, defense human at that time. They were all, they were actually, uh, you know, Naval Criminal Investigative Service, you know, agents that were in there. There were agents from other uh, federal law enforcement who themselves do source operations, right? Maybe they don't use the same tradecraft in the same kind of environment, but they were also out there you know, putting themselves at risk to provide intelligence. And of course, being the, quote, the DNI rep, you know, the defense, the, the, the director of national intelligence rep, the senior intelligence officer in, in Iraq, my job was to integrate and coordinate. So yeah, I had an obligation to to make sure I, I, I gathered all the intel guys, you know, under my warm embrace. But the reality is I did that whether I I was required to do that or not, because right. I, I really thought that those those women and men over there were were bringing some significant value to what we're trying to accomplish in our our compound. Yeah. So yeah, I, DIA was there in space, and you're right. Uh, DIA doesn't get the, the credit it's due. Part of that's due its positioning in the political battle space right. of the IC in Washington D.C. Part of that's due because of just the necessary obligations of secrecy and, right and part of that's because they just don't have the prominent infrastructure for collection 
Uh, I think everybody's probably heard of military attaches. Well, every one of them works for the director of DIA. They're all DIA officers. Okay. Uh, so the defense attache service works for the director of DIA. You know, some people know that, some people don't, but everybody's heard of military attaches. Probably very few people have heard of the defense clandestine service, fewer still, because they toil away in, in anonymity to a degree, which is imposed on them. Right. But it's a very necessary part so they can be effective. So, right. yeah, they don't get the credit they deserve. And there are remarkable officers. And DIA is inherently an all-source analytic agency, and that's what the culture in DIA is. It's designed to support the analytic machine and the, and the, and the purity of the analytic process uh, within DIA. So it, is, it does have a very analytic – you can smell, you know, it's very analytic <laughs> – yeah, smell it when you, when you enter the building. I'm joking, but you can smell it when you get enter the building. So I know we're we're kind of just hitting the wave tops here, uh, Doug. I, and I know um, we're we're probably going to have to have you back again on sometime because of, uh, we're we're glossing over so much. But what what came after Iraq for you after you know 2010? Well, after Iraq, uh, the the director of operations. Uh, thought that the best place for me to take my multiple years as a COS, multiple times a COS. <clears throat> and I should say for your audience that may not be as familiar with with uh, CIA structure as, as some of us are, uh, you know, in the director, your first thing is, to, you know, in the director of operations, I would guess probably, you know, a, less than a quarter operators get to be a COS one time. And with me having the privilege and the honor to be at four times, it's extraordinary. It says more about the agency's risk-taking than it does about my competency. But, but I think the, the deputy director of operations at the time, a guy named Mike Sulik, who was a consultant for the, for the Americans, uh, and wrote a book about the Russian intel operations in the United States. They're a great guy. Former Marine, it's the only thing I could say bad about him. Uh, <laughs> A Viet, a Viet, Harvard graduate, Vietnamese linguist, if you can believe that. Marine, you know, interesting. Mike is, is an amazing guy. What flavors uh, of crayons do the Vietnamese have? Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, so, uh, so Mike decided that, you know, whatever it is that I represented, uh, that he, he needed that as part of the, you know, the, the training machine. So, uh, you know, the agency has not allowed me to use the F word, and I'm not talking about the. Oh, oh. <laughs> you, you know, the other F word. Tra tra training, <laughs> you know. training the next generation of spies. Yeah, training. Yeah, training. I was in charge of all operational training for at an undisclosed location. Um, but, uh, you know, Mike thought that yeah, I had a contribution to make in growing the next generation of me and uh, and to be able to. Uh, do that, you know, at our facility was a singular honor. And, and given my blue collar perception, I was, uh, I was kind of a fish out of water. I felt very out of water while I was there because I just didn't still, you know, here I am in SIS three or four, you know, with now, you know, what was that? 2010, you know, I'm now from 1987 to 2010, I had that much time in the agency and I'm still, you know, I wasn't acting like it, but I, I certainly believed it. You know, I still wasn't worthy of, of this kind of opportunity. I really didn't think I was worthy. 
and uh, maybe there are others that would probably agree with that <laughs> as well. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, that was a, a wonderful opportunity to to kind of go back and see how you know the big the big training machine worked, and uh, you know to be an advocate, to be a champion, to be able to take credit for you know the, the training cadre of both former officers as well as current officers, military accomplished military officers. Uh, and I should say other non-military, non-CIA uh, members of the leadership and training cadre as well, yeah. who themselves were graduates of that program. Uh, so it was a wonderful opportunity for me to really reconnect with the basics of espionage and, and really realize, A, how much I failed to learn and how much I had learned but forgotten. Yeah. And so it, for me, it really, as I think anybody who was a, an instructor, you know, at that location will tell you, they came out of that as a much better operator than they did going into that assignment. Have there been many changes from the time you went through to the time that you you worked there? Or did they, did yeah. they really hold on to that core? Uh, the, the certification for case officers is predominantly unchanged. Okay. Because quite frankly, it's all about the fundamentals. Uh-huh. And so even if, you know, your instructor was a retired officer who spent his or her career in Eastern Europe or in Moscow and had no exposure to Afghanistan, Iraq, COIN, CTC, none of that. Fundamentally, you can't be a good CTC officer unless you understand the basics of espionage. And uh, that's where you learn it. And yes, there are adaptations there. Uh -huh. There are always improvements to the course, as, as you would expect. You know, interjection of modern technology, because uh -huh. that was critical and important for officers to understand the, the benefits and the risk of technology. And what you found is is down in those, in the, in those locations, you found, you know, Directorate of Science and Technology presence and training and, and uh -huh. graduate level, you know, courses. You found Directorate of Analysis. So all of a sudden you find in that environment, in close geographic proximity, all of a sudden you find the other tribes that are there. And then after I left that location and became the grand poobah, I was the, you know, the Emperor Palpatine of the entire training machine uh, you know, we try, we built a greater integration uh, from a visionary standpoint, you know, to even more integrate and better integrate and develop better appreciation for the different life forms within the DO, some of which you mentioned, uh, you know, targeters, CMOs, you know, support officers, you know, all of that. And uh, I only, you know, kind of kicked that rock down the hill. I fought the visionary battle, but it was, you know, guys like, uh, you know, Daryl Blocker, who's, who's an overt officer, uh, Mike Lacombe, who was a multiple COS in Iraq, who, who had been my DCOS when I was there. Uh, there were guys like, like Lacombe uh, who really, really made the transformation of, of that entire, you know, uh, operational training enterprise to be a modern one to reflect the demands of 
of the environment in which modern CIA officers were finding themselves. And, uh, and so, you know, my role was minor. Doug, and, uh, and it was and it was interesting if I could go back to something yeah. else I said is, you know, what I did was create a division where you'd come in an entry on duty and you go to graduated leadership and operational development process until you ended up as a as a proto wretched pensioner at the end of the ride. And there were some CIA officers who were quite, you know, uh, you know, impervious to and insoluble in new ideas fortunately minority, you know, I, I had conversations like this, which is where um, that's not going to work. And I go, why not? And they go, well, because it's not. It's just not going to work. We don't have time. Uh, we don't need any of that. And it's not going to work. And I said, what's the f fundamental objection? And they would go, well, well let, let me not object. Let me just say this. Let me go you're a military guy, right? Isn't that where you came from? I go, I go, yes, sir. And they go, yeah, that's a military thing. That whole thing, that whole thing from basic course to advanced course to Leavenworth to the war college, you know, all of that stuff, yeah, that's a military thing. That's, that's not us. So going back to my conversation in 1992 on, you know, this un, non-existent right. process of military leadership, versus CIA leadership. Now I'm facing that, you know, <laughs> you know, as a very senior officer in the Directorate of Operations. Right. So I thought it was very ironic. The good news is that their vision didn't take the day. It was guys like Blocker and Mike Lacombe and others who followed them that really made it happen and created a fully integrated uh, pro program that, you know, is still under improvement every day that that thing exists. Doug, this is a... Uh... A little spicy, but uh, you, you were also a senior guy during a time where the agency had some pretty uh, spectacular public successes and failures. Uh, you had the uh, the uh, Bin Laden raid. You had Benghazi happen. You had the director step down. Um, just, I was just curious if you're from your perspective, if you had any insights into sort of the internal dynamics of what was happening in the agency um, as those events kind of unfolded in a very public way. Any institution that's going to be buffeted around by anomalous behavior, by the environment, outside forces, and certainly by behaviors of individual officers, whether they're junior officers or senior officers. But the agency's got a resilience that is, that is just another, another example of why it's such a remarkable institution. Uh, when you have a number of, of uh, very public incidents like the one you mentioned. One you didn't mention was the, uh, you know, the leaking of the IG investigation on the detention program. Oh, the, RDI, the, the RDI that leaked the, out. Yeah, RDI, yeah, that through was through quite controversial. Yeah. Quite controversial. And, uh, and, know, and I remember I, Diane Feinstein was publicly saying that the CIA was going to be disbanded over that. <laughs> Californian, what can you say? <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, no, dis no disrespect to the fine people of, of California. We, we need California because, uh, you know, for various reasons. But the uh, liberal thought is just happens to be one in uh, Hollywood, might be another, Silicon Valley. But the uh, politicians, you know, Devin Nunez and others, not, not so helpful. Uh, but I don't want to get political here. But the, uh, 
It, it really is because of the strength of the agency workforce. You know, the commitment to, to not only American core values, but also the agency ethos, you know, of, of being right when nobody's looking at you, whether you are being right. You know, you're doing the right thing when nobody's looking kind of thing. And uh, so you kind of, you know that stuff's going to happen. You can't plan for it. You just plan for an existence of some negative thing. And, you know, you just get beyond it. You got to get through all that. And because the agency officers, you know, the women and men, regardless of the tribe, you know, in the, in the agency are, are just so remarkably resilient. You know, there are remarkable people throughout federal service who are, who are remarkable. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the only remarkable stuff that exists in federal service is in CIA. You know, the personal side of me wants to say that, professional side of me <laughs> wants to not say that. But, but the reality is it's the strength of the, and, the, and the caliber, the quality of the people and the leaders in CIA that make it so resilient. And we get through that stuff. Whether it's Durham investigating guys like me and others, whether it's, you know, all the things that you mentioned, whether it's RDI, uh, whether it's, you know, traitorous behavior by, by respected colleagues, um, uh, you know, Jim Nicholson was a branch chief in CTC when I was there, you know, and he, of course, was recruited by the KGB. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just uh, to answer your question, it's the, the strength of the agency's officers and the strength of the culture and the, and the, and the commitment to, to do what's right. You know, we get beyond that. We just say, OK, this happened. Let's fix the agency right. and let's move forward. Well, yeah. the agency is also sort of in this unique position where if there is somebody, if something goes wrong or if somebody does something wrong, that. Like the agency, their failures, whether it's organizational or, or individual or, or mistakes or whatever, get broadcast, but none of the successes ever really get recognized. So it, it's easy for the pub, it's easy to, to paint this very dark picture of this shadow organization when all you hear about it is the things that don't go right, you know. Um, and I think that's an excellent comment. That it, that is that's the most important thing actually that that's been said during this podcast today is, is that question, and the reason, and it really gets to the heart of why you and your platform exist, right? Why the team house exists, because all of the professionals that you have is as as speakers, we all come from that underappreciated, underunderstood community and so you give us an opportunity to appropriately explore and help to educate and help to dispel mythology and, and erode misperception and that's why I, I, I'm, I'm telling you a lot of my very traditional minded CIA colleagues probably a number of current officers who may be part of your listen to this or watch it on YouTube might sit and go you know, I can't believe that guy's out there just blabbering away, just yakking, yakking, yakking about stuff. Uh, and I think I have because I can't because I'm right. not undercover. Right. And because that I my career represents a decent part of the agency, you know, I, 
and and so I can I can do my part right in taking advantage of your kind invitation and the res- and be able to speak and be part of this incredibly respected enterprise known as Team House podcast uh, and uh, so being able to you know be a little more transparent with the American people well he wrote what what you said Dave you know and and current officers can't do that you know yeah, because. Yeah. They, because their stuff's too secret, right? You know, right. But former officers like me can give our opinions and our perceptions, and 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 to talk about, you know, the, you know, in very general terms, you know, the the magic that makes CIA so remarkable. And in the end, as I've said multiple times ad nauseum, look, the magic is because of the magicians in CIA, you know, and all of those women and men, all those officers. You know, are magicians in every way, shape. You make it sound like Disneyland, Doug. Yeah, well, we have a couple goofies in there. But he <laughs> retired. You know, he retired to he retired to New Mexico. So, <laughs> uh, you know, did you did you see a shift in agency culture where the PRB where 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 it started to become okay for guys once their covers were rolled back to, to publicly speak because, you know, that it, I don't know if it was ever a rule, but it, it sort of wasn't acceptable for a very long period of time that. Yeah. Early, early on, you know, we, we, as you well know, and you mentioned, we sign on entry on duty, a lifetime obligation for pre-publication review of any, any, prepared remarks, any document, any publication, or if, in fact, you had rendered to me all of the questions you were going to ask me, I would have had to write up an answer sent that in. Okay, we all sign up for that. It's burdensome. It's real pain in the butt. And where the frustration came from is because the agency didn't live up to its side of the obligation. Right. Okay. And... The agency would sludge it up. They found something that was they was unappealing, and they had amateurs that were doing it. They didn't have a system. And I'm not denigrating, you know, the earlier generations of those suffering officers that served in the PRB. But the reality is nobody had ever put any serious systemic, any time and attention into creating a, a system that allowed the agency to live up to its side of that, that, that obligation. And then what would happen inexorably when the agency didn't, is you'd have guys and gals who would just say, you know, screw it. I'm going to publish it anyway. What are they going to do? I'm out of the agency. They're going to fire me. I don't have a clearance. You know, what can they do? I don't, I don't work for the agency. I'm not a green badger. You know, what leverage do they have over me? You know, some federal prosecutor going to prosecute me for publishing a doc, you know, a document in the Cypher brief, you know, that I didn't clear with the PRB, you know. No, the, the agency has very little options when it comes to those of us on the outside that don't live up to our obligation. But the agency had to do its part to keep us on task because it had to create a realistic response. The response was pathetic in the early days. Horrible. Pathetic. Now... It is very crisp. The other thing that the agency uh, made a dramatic change is in the in the early days of the previous presidential administration, if an officer was to say something that was politically unappealing to the White House, the agency would try to wrap that up in terms of, a, of redacting that 
as a contingent contingency for approval of your document. Wow. And they in the early days, the agency's PRB was known as the Pre-Publication Review Board. Now it's known as the PCRB, the Pre-Publication Classification Review Board, because its mandate is to review for classified information, yeah, not for political not, content, not for inconvenient facts and truths and opinions that a certain White House administration, you know, found to be unappealing and was pressuring the agency, you know, to stifle those of us that were exercising our First Amendment rights. But again, back to my point about how resilient the agency is and how transformative it can be, it immediately responded when that criticism was levied. Boom, got it right. You sent something to the PRB. In some cases, they will turn it around within hours. Wow. They've got they've got a crisp machine now. Now, if you're writing a book, you know, and and it, and it can and it is a turgid tome of immense number of pages, and consists of every boring fact about your agency existence, from all the EPA's exceptional performance awards you got, <laughs> all the meetings you attended, everything of that, and you don't know and. And so, yeah, they got to shop that out to people that actually understand where the secrets reside and who are the custodians of secrets. So there is a, a little latency in there Yeah, that, that is very, very reasonable and very realistic. But if you're writing an article for Political Magazine or for the Cypher Brief, which I, I think is a great outlet too, uh, and if you guys publish documents as part of your podcast, which I wouldn't <laughs> recommend you do, I'd stick with your business file. Uh, <laughs> You know, you'd find that the PRB was was uh, very re very responsive. Now, uh, they made some dramatic improvements. I mean, I, I know you know some former colleagues of yours have had to file lawsuits against the agency to get their. Oh, yeah. their Mark Zaid, a well-known attorney. Yeah, in Washington, yeah. But yeah. at the same time, I mean, just from our own experience interviewing people here on the show who have had their books put through PRB, I mean, yeah. there is a qu quite a bit of material that they do let you know, former agency employees say publicly, which is, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you will probably never find an MI6 officer from modern era on this show talking because they, they can't. They can't by law. Yeah. 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 Well, you could get them on, but he or she would be a foreign and Commonwealth officer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, would that be a, a very thin veil? <laughs> I, I think so. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're right. Absolutely right. Yeah, and and you and you got to give credit where credit's due. That's a tough job. That's, that's a tough job. Suppose I'm writing. Suppose I'm making stuff up. I'm writing a book right. about my agency experience, and I talk about you know the agency's you know development of cold fusion reactors that could power the meet the entire global energy needs. You know, and I'm and and the, and the PRB sits and says. Could that be compartmented? Could that be real? This guy, you know, I'm making it up, you know. So, you know, when you when you weave fiction in to very closely mirror right, right. Uh, the real world, and even it, in, in the most naive cases where you make up some bit of tradecraft or you make up some technical widget, you know, wizard that only Q could love, uh, you may you may not even know that there is a, something it's a real very similar to that. Yeah, all of a sudden there's some sap someplace, right? 
you know, and and then all of a sudden I've, you find I, I've seen it on the uh, on the military side where um, there were things, you know, factual inaccuracies in the book American Sniper uh, that were called out, and the authors of the book said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hold on! This book went through DOD review, so." DOD said all of this is true. It's like, no, they didn't. DOD reviewed your book for classified information. They're not a fact checker. That's, right. that's not that's not what they're doing. And that's not yeah, what a look, DOD review represents of your book. And when the PRB gives you their response, uh, you know, that little caveat is is explicit as part of the PRB. Right. You know, where they sit and go, hey, all we reviewed was for for you know embargoed content. We're not we're not validating this. We're not verifying. We're not corroborating, you know, at all. And it'd be impossible for them to do that, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And and the thing is, like, we've talked about this before. When when some of these uh, uh, LARPers, you know, some of these people who claim to have been in the CIA but our, never were. Our boy Wayne Simmons. You know, and, and yeah. they get to a certain point. People are like, well, why, how come the CIA doesn't call him out? It's like. Because that's how they retain to die in ability with with people who were. If they were to sit there, if they call out somebody who wasn't, but then they don't call out somebody who says they were, then what does that tell you? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. They can't get in that it's, business. Yeah, the PRB can't be the truth police. They've right. Got to be the classification police. Right. And their their remit ends there. Uh, but you know, bottom line is, I think the PRB's come a long way in it. Mm-hmm. It's 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 meeting the needs of those of us, that, you know, want to get stuff in the public domain. Yeah. As part as part of the providing appropriate insight so that the American people could be more informed citizens. Right. And that's what you're all about. That's why you guys provide this remarkable platform for dudes like me, you know, and, other, and others that have done far more Doug, I, uh, to I, be able to explain. I, I would love to have you back on the show again, because we've, we've run two and a half hours here, and we still, <laughs> we still haven't talked about Ukraine, we haven't talked about Syria, we haven't talked about your time at DIA, we haven't talked about your life after the agency, and tra- and becoming a, a wretched pensioner, as you, as you refer to. <laughs> um, so I, I would love to have you on again to kind of t- t- talk a little bit more um, but I really appreciate your time tonight and kind of illuminating uh, all of us to some of these issues. I mean, it's a, some really unique insights, I think. Well, to me, who, who needs to give you gentlemen thanks, as well as the participants in the podcast, you know, both this podcast and the many others, the hundred, several hundred that you've already produced. Uh, again, you know, uh, there's no other, you know, thing that, that, that is like this. And so it's, it's, it was a singular honor for you to reach out to me and ask me to come on. We, it's so. it's our honor. Like we're just like I said, we're a couple of schnoes who like have some cameras and and a YouTube channel in a basement in Brooklyn. Yeah, exactly. Like we yeah. we deeply deeply appreciate you know you and and everybody else who who agrees to come on and yeah. and spend a Friday night with us. We appreciate all of our viewers. You know, people who make this show happen. Uh, we appreciate our Patreon supporters a little bit more than just our regular viewers, but not much, not much, because <laughs> um, they pay the rent. Um, we have a couple of questions from from our viewers. Uh, speaking of money, um, uh, that we that I, we want to get to Jackson. Thank you very much. Uh, he says, "What was your experience with uh, the paramilitary, uh, the PMOOs like, and how much?" Uh, has the organization transformed over the course of the GWAT? 
Well, I mean, you know, that that's a whole other episode right there, right? That we could we could discuss that and and I think what'd be useful is to have more than just one dude on. I think we have a little panel discussion. That would be amazing. I think to to get to get other you know, other perspectives on that, you know, because you want to get a broad view rather than just, you know, my narrow myopic view. Uh one, the paramilitary PMOs, the paramilitary operations officers, which are, you know, certified to be case officers to handle to develop and handle spies recruit spies and handle them and to also be able to continue to maintain their military skills because every one of them had a military background whether it was you know 10 years or whether it was a full career whether you were a traditional you know military officer or whether you were come from a special mission unit you know, paramilitary officers bring a unique capability to the agency. You combine that with the extraordinary authorities, uh, your know, operational authorities and financial authorities of the agency, and you got a tool, a foreign policy tool that is second to none for the president of the United States. So those women and men that are currently serving in the special activity center, who are not all of whom are PMOs, many of them are just paramilitary experts, if I could use that term. I don't know what the term of art is. But I think they I use that para paramilitary specialists, I think, is a term Special. for the green badgers uh, at this yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think, you know, the combination of all that expertise is extraordinary. The challenge with PMOOs is you got to maintain your military, your paramilitary skills, and yet you got to maintain your case officer skills. And both of those sets of skills are quite perishable. So it is a very tough, tough job uh, to maintain that because, you know, the two years that you're the deputy chief of station and in some station someplace, you know, that's two years that somebody else is carrying your rucksack in SAC. Uh, I have always been well served by uh, every paramilitary officer, whether they're PM specialists or whether they're PMOs. I have always been well served. They are an extraordinary enabler. They are an extraordinary capability. I have found them to be consummate professionals in every way. Uh, yeah, sometimes they wear Oakley's inside an embassy and they got five <laughs> of pants on, but we just, if somebody comments on that, we just tell them they're from this Fifth Special Forces group. They yeah. don't know any better. And like just, they, they chew with the, their mouths open, they put their elbows on yeah, the table and yeah. they eat. And, and I, they I, I'm, obviously, I'm obviously kidding, but you know, paramilitary officers have been, been, have been, I've had an exceptionally positive, uniformly positive experience uh, with them. Uh, in terms of, of the transformation of the agency, it is, uh, it, I mean, first thing is we, we have a totally re engineered and restructured agency. Uh, controversial to some degree. I, I am one of the critics of that. Uh, but then again, I never served under that. Uh, so I, I, I don't openly criticize it because who am I to criticize something I never experienced? Uh, but the agency is physically restructured to meet the modern demands uh, on the senior agency leadership and on the, the intelligence requirements of its customer base. Uh, the agency's created another director the Directorate of Digital Innovation. And that's to reflect, the, you know, the impact of digital-based technology uh -huh. in terms of capabilities and threats. So you have the 
the Directorate of Digital Innovation, which in and of itself has evolved since its birthing some years ago. So that's all changing. And so, uh, you know, and and the the Directorate of Support has, has mutated in a positive way over time. And the Directorate of Analysis is always so well plugged into the customer community and the collectors community. They kind of, they're the connective tissue and the bridge. Uh, and they have evolved and restructured and, and their training program has, has, has uh, kept pace with that, with modern demands. So, so it, 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 the agency, uh, the, the central intelligence agency that I served in is not the central intelligence agency of today. If I went back and I don't, I've been back four times, uh, one time to do a personal meeting with Gina Asper, who I know and admire very well. And it was at the end of her ride. Uh, the other was for promotion and a, uh, and a medal ceremony. And uh, so it is an agency that in some respects I wouldn't recognize, but the commitment, patriotism, the capability, competency, the, the, com the energy, the passion, the patriotism, you know, it's the same but the agency is totally different. And that's the way it needs to be. It needs to be a different agency. And three years from now, the kids that are serving in the agency today, I shouldn't use the word kid, but I'm 72 now. <laughs> the, everybody's a kid. You guys are kids. <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, it won't be the agency that they recognize either. Right. It'll be elements that they recognize. Right. The core values of the agency are immutable and haven't changed. Right. And that's, that's the most important thing. At its core, it, it's still the same OSS that it was. Like it's it's still the same people with the same desire to serve the country, no matter how yes. that service changes. Right. Yeah, the, the the way you serve the, the nation and the American people has dramatically changed. But you're absolutely right. The the commitment and the focus on the safety and security and the well being of the American people is paramount in CIA. That'll never change. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I think last comment, even as any question, thank you, Love Star. We really appreciate it. And no questions. Thank you, three, for your services and sacrifice self selflessly given when called upon by your tribe. Guys, we will uh, see all of you next Friday with uh, Fred Galvin, uh, one of the first MARSOC officers. Uh, he has a book out about their fir MARSOC's first deployment to Afghanistan, some of the controversies around it. Um, so we'll be talking to big Fred. Big controversies next around Friday. Yeah, big time. Massive. Um, so we'll talk to Fred next Friday. Um, Doug, again, thank you so much for joining us tonight, taking, you know, two and a half hours out of your Friday evening to, to speak with us. And uh, I'll be in touch. I mean, if it's cool with you, I'd love to reschedule you again, maybe sometime over the summer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would uh, I would let the the trauma of what I had to say. <laughs> no, it was such <laughs> an, your audience. It was such an <laughs> honor. It was such an honor for us to have you on. And we really we deeply, deeply appreciate it. My, okay. I, look, you guys are remarkable. I appreciate it very much. I, I look forward to coming back and we ought to do that 
panel thing sometime in the future. That well. would have been be amazing. That doesn't have to include me, but I can help you fill the panel. <laughs> no, that would be amazing. And you would absolutely. Okay. Count it. Thank you, Tiggles. Thank you, everybody. And have a great night. We hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.